Stormfront by Jim Butcher. Print publication by Rock. A division of Penguin Putnam. This production is brought to you by Buzzy Multimedia Audiobooks and is read for you by James Marsters. I heard the mailman approach my office door half an hour earlier than usual. He didn't sound right. His footsteps fell more heavily, jauntily, and he whistled. A new guy. He whistled his way to my front door, then fell silent for a moment. Then he laughed. Then he knocked. I winced. My mail comes through the mail slot unless it's registered. I get a really limited selection of registered mail, and it's never good news. I got up out of my office chair and opened the door. The new mailman, who looked like a basketball with arms and legs and a sunburned balding head, was chuckling at the sign on the glass door. He glanced at me and hooked a thumb toward the sign. <laughs> You're kidding, right? I read the sign. People change it occasionally. And shook my head. No, I'm serious. Can I have my mail, please? So, uh, uh, like parties, shows, stuff like that? He looked past me as though he expected to see a white tiger or possibly some skimpily clad assistants prancing around my one-room office. I sighed, not in the mood to get mocked again, and reached for the mail he held in his hand. No, not like that. I don't do parties. He held on to it, his head tilted curiously. So what, some kind of fortune teller, cards and crystal balls and things? No, I told him, I'm not a psychic. I tugged at the mail. He held on to it. What are you, then? What's the sign on the door say? It says Harry Dresden, wizard. That's me, I confirmed. An actual wizard? He asked, grinning as though I should let him in on the joke. Spells and potions, demons and incantations, subtle and quick to anger? Not so subtle. I jerked the mail out of his hand and looked pointedly at his clipboard. Can I sign for my mail, please? The new mailman's grin vanished and replaced with a scowl. He passed over the clipboard to let me sign for the mail, another late notice from my landlord, and said, You're a nut. That's what you are. He took his clipboard back and said, You have a nice day, sir. I watched him go. Typical, I muttered, and shut the door. My name is Harry Blackstone Copperfield Dresden. Conjure it by your own risk. I'm a wizard. I work out of an office in Midtown Chicago. As far as I know, I'm the only openly practicing professional wizard in the country. You can find me in the yellow pages under Wizards. Believe it or not, I'm the only one there. My ad looks like this. Harry Dresden, wizard. Lost items found, paranormal investigations, consulting, advice, reasonable rates, no love potions, endless purses, parties, or other entertainment. You'd be surprised how many people call just to ask me if I'm serious. But then, if you'd seen the things I'd seen, if you knew half of what I knew, you'd wonder how anyone would not think I was serious. The end of the 20th century and the dawn of the new millennium had seen something of a renaissance in the public awareness of the paranormal. Psychics, haunts, vampires, you name it. People still didn't take them seriously, but all the things science had promised us hadn't come to pass. Disease was still a problem, starvation was still a problem, violence and crime and war were still problems. In spite of the advance of technology, things hadn't just changed the way everybody had hoped and thought they would. Science, the largest religion of the 20th century, had become somewhat tarnished by images of exploding space shuttles, crack babies, and a generation of complacent Americans who had allowed the television to raise their children. 
People were looking for something. I think they just didn't know what. And even though they were once again starting to open their eyes to the world of magic and the arcane that had been with them all the while, they still thought I must be some kind of joke. Anyway, it had been a slow month, a slow pair of months, actually. My rent from February didn't get paid until the 10th of March, and it was looking like it might be even longer until I got caught up for this month. My only job had been the previous week when I'd gone down to Branson, Missouri, to investigate a country singer's possibly haunted house. It hadn't been. My client hadn't been happy with that answer, and had been even less happy when I suggested he lay off any intoxicating substances and try to get some exercise and sleep, and see if that didn't help things more than any exorcism. I'd gotten travel expenses plus an hour's pay, and gone away feeling I'd done my honest, righteous, and impractical thing. I heard later he hired a shyster psychic to come in and perform a ceremony with a lot of incense and black lights. Some people... I finished up my paperback and tossed it into the Dunn box. There was a pile of red and discarded paperbacks in the cardboard box on one side of my desk. The spines bent and the pages mangled. I'm terribly hard on books. I was eyeing the pile of unread books, considering which to start next, given that I had no real work to do, when my phone rang. I stared at it in a somewhat surly fashion. We wizards are terrific at brooding. After the third ring, when I thought I wouldn't sound a little too eager. I picked up the receiver and said, Dresden. Oh, is this some um, Harry Dresden, the uh, wizard? Her tone was apologetic, as though she were terribly afraid she would be insulting me. No, I thought. It's Harry Dresden, the uh, lizard. Harry Dresden, the wizard, is one door down. It is the prerogative of wizards to be grumpy. It is not, however, the prerogative of freelance consultants who are late on their rent, so instead of saying something smart, I told the woman on the phone, Yes, ma'am, how can I help you today? I, uh, she said, I'm not sure. I've lost something, and I think maybe you could help me. Finding lost articles is a specialty, I said. What would I be looking for? There was a nervous pause. My husband, she said. She had a voice that was a little hoarse, like a cheerleader who had been working on a long tournament but had enough weight-up years in it to place her as an adult. My eyebrows went up. Ma'am, I'm not really a missing person specialist. Have you contacted the police or a private investigator? No, she said quickly. No, they can't. That is, I haven't. Oh, dear, this is also complicated. Not something can talk about on the phone. I'm so sorry to take up your time, Mr. Dresden. Hold on now, I said quickly. I'm sorry, you didn't tell me your name. There was that nervous pause again, as though she was checking a sheet of written notes before answering. Call me Monica. People who know diddly about wizards don't like to give us their names. They're convinced that if they give the wizard their name from their own lips, it could be used against them. To be fair, they're right. I had to be polite and harmless as I could. She was about to hang up out of pure indecision, and I needed the job. I could probably turn hubby up if I worked on it. Okay, Monica, I told her, trying to sound as melodious and friendly as I could. If you feel your situation is of a sensitive nature, maybe you could come by my office and talk about it. If it turns out that I can help you best, I will. And if not, then I can direct you to someone I think can help you better. I gritted my teeth and pretended I was smiling. No charge. It must have been the no charge that did it. She agreed to come right out to the office and told me she would be there in an hour. That put her estimated arrival at about 2.30. Plenty of time to go out and get some lunch, and then get back to the office to meet her. 
The phone rang again, almost the instant I put it down, making me jump. I peered at it. I don't trust electronics. Anything manufactured after the 40s is suspect. It doesn't seem to have much liking for me. You name it, cars, radios, telephones, TV, VCRs, none of them seem to behave well for me. I don't even like to use automatic pencils. I answered the phone with the same false cheer I had summoned up for the Monica husband missing. This is Dresden. May I help you? Harry, I need you at the Madison in the next ten minutes. Can you be there? The voice on the other end of the line was also a woman's. Cool, brisk, businesslike. Why, Lieutenant Murphy, I gushed, overflowing with saccharin. It's good to hear you, too. It's been so long. Oh, they're fine, fine. And your family? Save it, Harry. I've got a couple of bodies here, and I need you to take a look around. I sobered immediately. Karen Murphy was a director of special investigations out of a downtown Chicago, a de facto appointee of the police commissioner to investigate any crimes dubbed unusual. Vampire attacks, troll maraudings, and fairy abductions of children didn't fit very neatly on a police report. But at the same time, people got attacked, infants got stolen, property was damaged or destroyed, and someone had to look into it. In Chicago or pretty much anywhere in Chicagoland, that person was Karen Murphy. I was her library of the supernatural on legs and a paid consultant for the police department. But two bodies? Two deaths by means unknown? I hadn't handled anything like that for her before. Where are you? I asked her. Madison Hotel on 10th, 7th floor. It's only a 15-minute walk from my office, I said. So you could be here in 15 minutes. Good. Um, I said, I looked at the clock. Monica, no last name, would be here in a little more than 45 minutes. I've sort of got an appointment. Dresden, I sort of got a pair of corpses with no leads and no suspects and a killer walking around loose. Your appointment can wait. My temper flared. It does that, actually. It can't, actually, I said. But I'll tell you what. I'll stroll on over and take a look around and be back here in time for it. Have you had lunch yet? she asked. What? she repeated the question. No, I said. Don't. There was a pause, and when she spoke again, there was sort of a greenish tone to her words. It's bad. How bad are we talking here, Murph? Her voice softened, and that scared me more than any images of gore or violent death could have. Murphy was the original tough girl. She prided herself on never showing weakness. It's bad, Harry. Please don't take too long. Special Crimes is itching to get their fingers on this one, and I know you don't like people to touch the scene before you can look around. I'm on the way, I told her, already standing and pulling my jacket on. Seventh floor, she reminded me. See you there. Okay. I turned off the lights to my office, went out the door, and locked up behind me, frowning. I wasn't sure how long it was going to take to investigate Murphy's scene, and I didn't want to miss out on speaking with Monica, asking me no questions. So I opened the door again, got out a piece of paper and thumbtack, and wrote, Out briefly, back for appointment at 2.30, Dresden. That done, I started down the stairs. I rarely use the elevator, even though I'm on the fifth floor. Like I said, I don't trust machines. They're always breaking down on me just when I need them. Besides which, if I was someone in this town using magic to kill people two at a time, and I didn't want to get caught, I'd make sure that I removed the only practicing wizard the police department kept on retainer. I liked the odds on the stairwell a lot better than I did in the cramped confines of an elevator. Paranoid? Probably. But just because you're paranoid doesn't mean there isn't an invisible demon about to eat your face.
Karen Murphy was waiting for me outside the Madison. Karen and I were a study in contrasts. Where I am tall and lean, she's short and stocky. Where I have dark hair and dark eyes, she's got Shirley Temple blonde locks and baby blues. Where my features are all lean and angular, with a hawkish nose and a sharp chin, hers are round and smooth, with the kind of cute nose you'd expect on a cheerleader. It was cool and windy, like it usually is in March, and she wore a long coat that covered her pantsuit. Murphy never wore dresses, though I suspected she'd have muscular, well-shaped legs, like a gymnast. She was built for function and had a pair of trophies in her office from Aikido tournaments to prove it. Her hair was cut at shoulder length and whipped out wildly in the spring wind. She wasn't wearing earrings, and her makeup was of sufficient quality and quantity that it was tough to tell she had any on at all. She looked more like a favorite aunt or a cheerful mother than a hard-bitten homicide detective. Don't you have any other jackets, Dresden? she asked as I came within hailing distance. There were several police cars parked illegally in the front of the building. She glanced at my eyes for half a second and then away quickly. I had to give her credit. It was more than most people did. It wasn't really dangerous unless she did it for several seconds, but I was used to anyone who knew I was a wizard, making it a point not to glance at my face. I looked down at my black canvas duster, with its heavy mantling and waterproof lining and sleeves actually long enough for my arms. What's wrong with this one? It belongs on the set of El Dorado. And? She snorted, an indelicate sound from so small a woman, and spun on her heel to walk towards the hotel's front doors. I caught up and walked a little ahead of her. She sped her pace. So did I. We raced one another towards the front door with increasing speed through the puddles left over from last night's rain. My legs were longer. I got there first. I opened the door for her and gallantly gestured for her to go in. It was an old contest of ours. Maybe my values are outdated, but I come from an old school of thought. I think that men ought to treat women like something other than just shorter, weaker men with breasts. Try to convict me as if I'm a bad person for thinking so. I enjoy treating a woman like a lady, opening doors for her, paying for shared meals, giving flowers, all that sort of thing. It irritates the hell out of Murphy, who had to fight and claw and play dirty with the hairiest men in Chicago to get as far as she has. She glared up at me as I stood there holding open the door, but there was a reassurance about the glare, a relaxation. She took an odd sort of comfort in our ritual, annoying as she usually found it. How bad was it up on the seventh floor, anyway? We rode up in the elevator in a sudden silence. We knew one another well enough by this time that the silences were not uncomfortable. I had a good sense of Murphy, an instinctual grasp for her moods and patterns of thought, something I develop whenever I'm around someone for any length of time, whether it's a natural talent or a supernatural one, I don't know. My instincts told me that Murphy was tense, stretched as tight as piano wire. She kept it off her face, but there was something about the set of her shoulders and neck, the stiffness of her back that made me aware of it, or maybe I was just projecting it onto her. The confines of the elevator made me a bit nervous. I licked my lips and looked around the interior of the car. My shadow and Murphy's fell on the floor and almost looked as though we were sprawled there. There was something about it that bothered me, a nagging little instinct that I blew off as a case of nerves. Steady, Harry. She let out a harsh breath just as the elevator slowed, then sucked in another one before the elevators opened, as though she was planning to hold it for as long as we were on the floor and breathing only when she got back into the elevator again. Blood smells a certain way, a kind of sticky, almost metallic odor, 
and the air was full of it when the elevator doors opened. My stomach quailed a little bit, but I swallowed manfully and followed Murphy out of the elevator and down the hall past a couple of uniformed cops who recognized me and waved me past without asking to see the little laminated card the city had given me. Granted, even in a big city department like Chicago PD, they didn't exactly call in a horde of consultants. I went down in the paperwork just as a psychic consultant, I think. But still, unprofessional of the boys in blue. Murphy preceded me into the room. The smell of blood grew thicker, but there wasn't anything gruesome behind door number one. The outer door of the suite looked like some kind of sitting room done in rich tones of red and gold, like a set from an old movie in the 30s. Expensive looking, but somehow faux, nonetheless. Dark, rich leather covered the chairs, and my feet sunk into the thick, rust-colored shag of the carpet. The velvet velour curtains had been drawn, and though the lights were all on, the place still seemed a little too dark, a little too sensual in its textures and colors. It wasn't the kind of room where you would sit and read a book. Voices came from a doorway to my right. Wait here a minute, Murphy told me. Then she went through the door to the right of the entryway and into what I supposed was the bedroom of the suite. I wandered around the sitting room with my eyes mostly closed, noting things. Leather couch, two leather chairs, stereo and television in a black, glossy entertainment center, champagne bottle warming in a stand holding a brimming tub of what had been ice the night before, with two empty glasses set beside it. There was a red rose petal on the floor, clashing with the carpeting. But then in that room, what didn't? A bit to one side, under the skirt of one of the leather recliners, was a little piece of satiny cloth. I bent at the waist and lifted the skirt with one hand, careful not to touch anything. A pair of black satin panties. A tiny triangle with lace coming off the points lay there. One strap snapped as though the thong had simply been torn off. <laughs> Kinky. The stereo system was state-of-the-art, though not an expensive brand. I took a pencil from my pocket and pushed the play button with the eraser. Gentle, sensual music filled the room. A low bass, a driving drumbeat, wordless vocals, the heavy breathing of a woman as background. The music continued for a few seconds more, and then it began to skip over a section about two seconds long, repeating it over and over again. I grimaced. Like I said, I have this effect on machinery. It has something to do with being a wizard, with working with magical forces. The more delicate and modern the machine is, the more likely it is that something will go wrong if I get close enough to it. I can kill a copier at fifty paces. The love suite, came a man's voice, drawing out the word love into love. What do you think, Mr. Man? Hello, Detective Carmichael, I said without turning around. Carmichael's rather light, nasal voice had a distinctive quality. He was Murphy's partner and the resident skeptic convinced that I was nothing more than a charlatan scamming the city out of its hard-earned money. Were you saving the panties to take home yourself, or did you just overlook them? I turned and looked at him. He was short and overweight and balding, with beady, bloodshot eyes and a weak chin. His jacket was rumpled, and there were food stains on his tie, all of which served to conceal a razor intellect. He was a sharp cop, and absolutely ruthless at tracking down killers. He walked over to the chair and looked down. Not bad, Sherlock, he said. But that's just foreplay. Wait till you see the main attraction. I'll have a bucket waiting for you. He turned and killed the malfunctioning CD player with a jab from the eraser end of his own pencil.
I widened my eyes at him to let him know how terrified I was, then walked past him into the bedroom and regretted it. I looked, noted details mechanically, and quietly shut the door on the part of my head that had started screaming the second I entered the room. They must have died sometime the night before, as rigor mortis had already set in. They were on the bed. She was astride him, body leaned back, back bowed like a dancer. The curves of her breast made a lovely outline. He stretched out beneath her, a lean and powerfully built man, arms reaching out and grasping at the satin sheets, gathering them in his fists. Had it been an erotic photograph, it would have made a striking tableau. Except that the lovers' rib cages on the upper left side of their torsos had expanded outward through their skin, the ribs jabbing out like rabid snapped knives. Arterial blood had sprayed out of their bodies all the way to the mirror on the ceiling, along with gelatinous masses of flesh that had to be what remained of their hearts. Standing over them, I could see into the upper cavity of the bodies. I noted the now graying lining around the motionless left lungs and edges of the ribs, which apparently were forced outward and snapped by some force within. It definitely cut down on the erotic potential. The bed was in the middle of the room, giving it a subtle emphasis. The bedroom followed the decor of the sitting room. A lot of red, a lot of plush fabrics, a little over the top unless you viewed in candlelight. There were indeed candles and holders on the wall, now burned down to nubs and extinguished. I stepped closer to the bed and walked around it. The carpet squelched as I did. The little screaming part of my brain, slavely locked up behind doors of self-control and strict training, continued gibbering. I tried to ignore it. Really, I did. But if I didn't get out of that room in a hurry, I was going to start crying like a little girl. So I took in the details fast. The woman was in her twenties, in fabulous condition. At least I thought she had been. It was hard to tell. She had hair the color of chestnuts, cut in a page-boy style, and it seemed dyed to me. Her eyes were only partly open, and I couldn't quite guess their color beyond not dark. Vaguely green. The man was probably in his forties and had the kind of fitness that comes from a lifetime of conditioning. There was a tattoo on his right bicep, a winged dagger, that the pull of the satin sheets half concealed. There were scars on his knuckles, layers deep, and across his lower abdomen was a vicious, narrow, puckered scar that I guessed must have come from a knife wound. There were discarded clothes around, a tux for him, a little sheath of black dress and a pair of pumps for her. There were a pair of overnight bags, unopened and set neatly aside, probably by a porter. I looked up. Carmichael and Murphy were watching me in silence. I shrugged at them. Well, Murphy demanded, are we dealing with magic here, or aren't we? Either that, or it was some really incredible sex, I told her. Carmichael snorted. I laughed a little, too. And that was all the screaming part of my brain needed to slam open the doors I'd shut on it. My stomach revolted and heaved, and I lurched out of the room. Carmichael, true to his word, had set a stainless steel bucket outside the room, and I fell to my knees, throwing up. It only took me a few seconds to control myself again, but I didn't want to go back into that room. I didn't want to see what was in there anymore. I didn't want to see the two dead people whose hearts had literally exploded out of their chests. And someone had used magic to do it. 
They had used magic to wreak harm on another, violating the first law. The White Council was going to go into collective apoplexy. This hadn't been an act of a malign spirit or malicious entity, or an attack of one of the many creatures of the never-never, like vampires or trolls. This had been the premeditated, deliberate act of a sorcerer, a wizard, a human being able to tap into the fundamental energies of creation and life itself. It was worse than murder. It was twisted, wretched perversion, as though someone had bludgeoned another person to death with a Botticelli, turned something of beauty into an act of utter destruction. If you've never touched it, it's hard to explain. Magic is created by life, and most of all by the awareness, intelligence, and emotions of a human being. To end such a life with the same magic that was born from it was hideous, almost incestuous somehow. I sat up again and was breathing hard, shaking and tasting the bile in my mouth when Murphy came back out of the room with Carmichael. All right, Harry, Murphy said. Let's have it. What do you see happening here? I took a moment to collect my thoughts before answering. They came in. They had some champagne. They danced for a while, made out over there by the stereo, then went into the bedroom. They were there for less than an hour. It hit them when they were getting to the high point. Less than an hour, Carmichael said. How do you figure? Uh, the CD was only an hour and ten long. Figure a few minutes for dancing and drinking, and then they're in the room. Was the CD playing when they found them? No, Murphy said. Then it hadn't been set on a loop. I figured they wanted music just to make things perfect, given the room and all. Carmichael grunted sourly. Nothing we haven't already figured out for ourselves, he said to Murphy. He'd better come up with more than this. Murphy shot Carmichael a look that said, shut up, then said softly, I need more, Harry. I ran one of my hands back over my hair. There's only two ways one could have managed this. First is by evocation. Evocation is the most direct, spectacular, and noisy form of expressed magic or sorcery. Explosions, fire, that sort of thing. But I doubt it was an evocator who did this. Why? Murphy demanded. I heard her pencil scritching on the notepad she always kept with her. Because you have to be able to see or touch where you want your effect to go, I told her. Line of sight only. The man or woman would have to have been there in the room with them tough to hide forensic evidence with something like that, and anyone who was skilled enough, an advocator, to pull off a spell like that would have had the sense to use a gun instead. It's easier. What's the other option? Murphy asked. Thaumaturgy, I said. As above, so below. Make something happen on a small scale and give it the energy to happen on a large scale. Carmichael snorted. <laughs> what bullshit. Murphy's voice sounded skeptical. How would that work, Harry? Could it be done from somewhere else? I nodded. The killer would need to have something to connect them to the victims. Hair, fingernails, blood samples, that sort of thing. Like a voodoo doll? Exactly the same, yes. There's fresh dye in the woman's hair, Murphy said. I nodded. I was going to say that. Maybe if you find out where she got her hair styled, you might find something else. I don't know. Is there anything else that you can tell me that might be of use? Yes, the killer knew the victims. And I'm thinking it was a woman. Carmichael snorted. I don't believe we've got to sit here and listen to this. Nine times out of ten, the killer knows the victim. Shut up, Carmichael, Murphy said. What makes you say that, Harry? I stood up and rubbed my face with my hands. The way magic works, 
Whenever you do something with it, it, it comes from inside you. Wizards have to focus on what they're trying to do, visualize it, believe in it to make it work. You can't make something happen that isn't part of you inside. The killer could have murdered them both and made it look like an accident, but she did it this way. To get it done this way, she would have had to want them dead for very personal reasons. To be willing to reach inside them like that. Revenge, maybe. Maybe you're looking for a lover or a spouse. Also because of when they died, in the middle of sex. It wasn't a coincidence. Emotions are a kind of channel for magic, a path that can be used to get to you. She picked a time when they'd be together, to be charged up with lust. She got samples to use as a focus, and she planned it out in advance. You don't do that to strangers. Crap, Carmichael said, but this time it was more of an absent-minded curse than anything directed at me. Murphy glared at me. You keep saying she, she challenged me. Why the hell do you think that? I gestured toward the room. Because you can't do something like that without a whole lot of hate, I said. Women are better at hating than men. They focus it better, let it go better. Hell, witches are just plain meaner than wizards. This feels like a feminine vengeance of some kind to me. But a man could have done it, Murphy said. Well, I hedged. Christ, you're a chauvinist pig, Dresden. Is it something that only a woman could have done? Well, no, I don't think so. You don't think so, Carmichael drawed. Some expert. I scowled at them both, angry. I haven't really worked through the specifics of what I need to do to make someone's heart explode, Murph. As soon as I have occasion to, I'll be sure and let you know. When will you be able to tell us something? Murphy asked. I don't know, I held up a hand, forestalling her next comment. I can't put a timer on this stuff, Murph. It just can't be done. I don't even know if I can do it at all, much less how long it will take. At fifty bucks an hour, it better not take too long, Carmichael growled. Murphy glanced at him. She didn't exactly agree with him, but she didn't exactly slap him down, either. I took the opportunity to take a few long breaths, calming myself down. I finally looked back at them. Okay, I asked them. Who are they, the victims? You don't need to know that, Carmichael snapped. Ron, Murphy asked, I could really use some coffee. Carmichael turned to her. He wasn't tall, but he was all but looming over Murphy. Oh, come on, Murph. This guy's jerking your chain. You don't really think he's going to be able to tell you anything worth hearing, do you? Murphy regarded her partner's sweaty, beady-eyed face with a sort of frosty hauteur tough to pull off on someone six inches taller than she. No cream, two sugars. Damn it, Carmichael said. He shot me a cold glance, but didn't quite look at my eyes, then jammed his hands into his pants pockets and stalked out of the room. Murphy followed him out to the door, her feet silent, and shut it behind him. The sitting room immediately became darker, closer, with the grinning ghoul of its former chintzy intimacy dancing in the smell of blood in the memory of the two bodies in the next room. The woman's name was Jennifer Stanton. She worked for the Velvet Room. I whistled. The Velvet Room was a high-priced escort service run by a woman named Bianca. Bianca kept a flock of beautiful, charming, and witty women, pandering them to the richest men in the area for hundreds of dollars an hour. Bianca sold the kind of female company that most men only see on television and the movies. I also knew that she was a vampress of considerable influence in the Never Never. She had power with a capital P. I tried to explain the Never Never to Murphy before. She didn't really comprehend it. 
but she understood that Bianca was a badass vampress who sometimes squabbled for territory. We both knew that if one of Bianca's girls was involved, the vampress must be involved somehow, too. Murphy cut right to the point. Was this part of one of Bianca's territorial disputes? No, I said, unless she's having it with a human sorcerer. A vampire, even a vampire sorcerer, couldn't have pulled off something like this outside the never-never. Could she be at odds with a human sorcerer? Murphy asked me. Possible, but it doesn't sound like her. She isn't that stupid. What I didn't tell Murphy was that the White Council made sure that vampires who trifled with mortal practitioners never lived to brag about it. I don't talk to regular people about the White Council. It just isn't done. Besides, I said, if a human wanted to take a shot at Bianca by hitting one of her girls, he'd be better off to kill the girl and leave the customer healthy to spread the tale and scare off business. Hmm, Murphy said. She wasn't convinced, but she made notes of what I said. Who is the man? I asked her. Murphy looked up at me for a moment and then said evenly, Tommy, Tom. I blinked at her to let her know she hadn't revealed the mystery of the ages. Who? Tommy, Tom, she said. Johnny Marconi's bodyguard. Now it made sense. Gentleman Johnny Marconi had been the thug to emerge on top of the pile after the Vargasi family had dissolved into internal strife. The police department saw Marconi as a mixed blessing. After years of merciless struggle and bloody exchanges with the Vargasis, Gentleman Johnny tolerated no excuses in his organization, and he didn't like freelancers operating in his city. Muggers, bank robbers, and drug dealers who were not part of his organization somehow always seemed to get ratted out and turned in, or else simply went missing and weren't heard from again. Marconi was a civilizing influence on crime, and where he operated... It was more of a problem in terms of scale than ever before. An extremely shrewd businessman, he had a battery of lawyers working for him that kept him fenced in from the law behind a barricade of depositions and papers and tape recordings. The cops never said it, but sometimes it seemed like they were almost reluctant to chase him. Marconi was better than the alternative, anarchy in the underworld. I remember hearing he had an enforcer, I said. I guess he doesn't anymore. Murphy shrugged. So it would seem. So uh, what do you do next? Run down this hairstylist angle, I guess. I'll talk to Bianca and to Marconi, but I can already tell you what they'll tell me. She flicked her notebook closed and shook her head, irritated. I watched her for a moment. She looked tired. I told her so. I am tired, she replied. Tired of being looked at like I'm some sort of nutcase. Even Carmichael, my own partner, thinks I've gone over the edge in all of this. The rest of the station thinks so, too? I asked her. Most of them just scowl and spin their index fingers around their temples when they think I'm not looking, and file my reports without ever reading them. The rest are ones who have run into something spooky out there, and they're scared shitless. They don't want to believe in anything they didn't see on Mr. Science when they were kids. How about you? Me? Murphy smiled, a curving of her lips that was a vibrantly feminine expression, making her look entirely too pretty to be such a hard-ass. The world's falling apart at the seams, Harry. I guess I just think people are pretty arrogant to believe we've learned everything there is to know in the past century or so. What the hell? I can buy that we're just now starting to see things around us in the dark again. It appeals to the cynic in me. I wish everyone thought like you do, I said. It would cut down on my crank calls. She continued to smile at me, impish. But could you imagine a world where all the radio stations played ABBA? We shared a laugh. God, the room needed a laugh. Hey, Harry, Murphy said, grinning. I could see the wheels spinning in her head. Yeah? 
What you said about being able to figure out how the killer did this. About how you're not sure you can do it. Yeah. I know it's bullshit. Why do you lie to me about it? I stiffened. Christ, she was good. Or maybe I'm just not much of a liar. Look, Murphy, I said. There's some things you just don't do. Sometimes I don't want to get into the head of the slime I go after either. But you do what needs to be done to finish the job. I know what you mean, Harry. No, I said shortly. You don't know. And she didn't. She didn't know about my past, or the White Council, or the doom of Damocles hanging over my head. Most days, I could pretend I didn't know about it either. All the Council needed now was an excuse, just an excuse to find me guilty of violating one of the seven laws of magic, and the doom would drop. If I started putting together a recipe for a murder spell and they found out about it, that might be all the excuse they needed. Murph, I told her. I can't try figuring this spell out. I can't go putting together the things I'd need to do it. You just don't understand. She glared at me, without looking at my eyes. I had never met anyone else who could pull that one off. Oh, I understand. I understand that I've got a killer on the loose that I can't catch in the act. I understand that you know something that can help, or you can at least find out something. And I understand that if you dry up on me now, I'm tearing your card out of the department Rolodex and tossing it in the trash. Son of a bitch. My consulting for the department paid a lot of my bills. Okay, most of my bills. I could sympathize with her, I suppose. If I was operating in the dark like she was, I'd be nervous as hell, too. Murphy didn't know anything about spells or rituals or talismans, but she knew human hatred and violence all too well. It wasn't as though I was actually going to be doing any black magic, I told myself. I was just going to be figuring out how it was done. There was a difference. I was helping the police in an investigation, nothing more. Maybe the White Council would understand that. Yeah, right. And maybe one of these days I'd go to an art museum and become well-rounded. Murphy set the hook a second later. She looked at me and my eyes for a daring second before she turned away, her face tired and honest and proud. I need to know everything you can tell me, Harry. Please. Classic lady in distress. For one of those liberated professional women, she knew exactly how to jerk my old-fashioned chains around. I gritted my teeth. Fine, I said, fine. I'll start on it tonight. Oh, boy. The White Council was going to love this one. I just have to make sure they didn't find out about it. Murphy nodded and let out a breath without looking at me. Then she said, let's get out of here and walk towards the door. I didn't try to beat her to it. Then we walked out. The uniformed guards were still lazing around the hall outside. Carmichael was nowhere to be seen. The guys from forensics were out there, standing around impatiently, waiting for us to come out. Then they gathered up their plastic bags and tweezers and lights and things and filed past us into the room. Murphy was brushing at her windblown hair with her hand while we waited for the ancient elevator to take its sweet time about getting up to the seventh floor. She was wearing a gold watch, which reminded me. Oh, hey, I asked her, what time is it? She checked. 2.25, why? I breathed out a curse and turned for the stairs. I'm late for my appointment. I fairly flew down the stairs. I'd had a lot of practice at them, after all, and I hit the lobby at a jog. I managed to dodge a porter coming through the front with an armload of luggage and swung out into the sidewalk at a lope. I have long legs that eat up a lot of ground, and I was running into the wind, my black duster billowing out behind me. It was several blocks to my building, and after covering half of them, I slowed to a walk. 
I didn't want to arrive at the appointment with Monica missing man, puffing like a bellows, with my hair windblown and my face streaming with sweat. Blame it on being out of shape due to an inactive winter season, but I was breathing hard. It occupied enough of my attention that I didn't see the dark blue Cadillac until it had pulled up beside me, and a rather large man who stepped out of it into the sidewalk in front of me. He had bright red hair and a thick neck. His face looked like someone had smashed it flat with a board, repeatedly, when he was a baby, except for his jutting eyebrows. He had narrow little blue eyes that got narrower as I sized him up. I stopped and backed away, then turned around. Two more men, both of them as tall as me and a good deal heavier, were slowing down from their own jog. They had apparently been following me, and they looked annoyed. One was limping slightly, and the other wore a buzz cut that had been spiked up straight with some kind of styling gel. I felt like I was in high school again, surrounded by bullying members of the football team. Can I help you, gentlemen? I asked. I looked around for a cop, but they were all over at the Madison, I suppose. Everyone likes to gawk. Get in the car, the one in front of me said. One of the others opened the rear door. I like to walk. It's good for my heart. You don't get in the car. It isn't going to be good for your legs, the man growled. A voice came from inside the car. Mr. Hendricks, please, be more polite. Mr. Dresden, would you join me for a moment, please? I'd hoped to give you a lift back to your office, but your abrupt exit made it somewhat problematic. Perhaps you will allow me to convey you the rest of the way. I leaned down to look into the back seat. A man of handsome and unassuming features, dressed in casual sports jacket and Levi's, regarded me with a smile. And you would be? I asked him. His smile widened, and I swear it made his eyes twinkle. My name is John Marconi, and I'd like to discuss business with you. I stared at him for a moment, and then my eyes slid aside to the very large and very overdeveloped Mr. Hendricks. The man growled under his breath, and it sounded like Cujo just before he jumped at the woman in the car. And I didn't feel like duking it out with Cujo and his two buddies. So I got into the back of the caddy with gentleman Johnny Marconi. It was turning out to be a very busy day, and I was still late for my appointment. Gentleman Johnny Marcone didn't look like the sort of man who would have my legs broken or my jaw wired shut. His salt and pepper hair was cut short. There were lines from the sun and smiling etched in the corners of his eyes. His eyes were the green of well-worn bills. He seemed to be more like a college football coach, good-looking, tanned, athletic, and enthusiastic. The impression was reinforced by the men he kept with him. Cujo Hendricks hulked like an all-pro player who'd been ousted for extreme unnecessary roughness. Cujo got in the car again, glowered at me in the rearview mirror, then pulled out into the street, driving slowly towards my office. The steering wheel looked tiny and delicate in his huge hands. I made a mental note. Do not let Cujo put his hands around my throat. Or hand. It looked like almost one of them could manage it. The radio was playing, but as I got in the car, it fouled up, squealing feedback out over the speakers. Hendricks scowled and thought about it for a second. Maybe he had to relay the message through his second brain or something. Then he reached out and fiddled with the knobs before finally turning the radio off. At this rate, I hoped the car would make it all the way to my office. Mr. Dresden, Marconi said, smiling. I understand you work for the police department from time to time. They throw an occasional tidbit my way, I agreed. Hey, Hendricks, you really should wear your seatbelt. Statistics say you're 50 or 60 percent safer. 
Cujo growled at me in the rearview mirror again, and I beamed at him. Smiling always seems to annoy people more than actually insulting them. Or maybe I just have an annoying smile. Marconi seemed somewhat put off by my attitude. Maybe I was supposed to be holding my hat in my hand, but I never really liked Francis Ford Coppola, and I didn't have a godfather. I do have a godmother, and she is inevitably perhaps a fairy, but that's another story. Mr. Dresden, he said, how much would it cost to retain your services? That made me wary. What would someone like Marconi want me for? My standard fee is $50 an hour plus travel expenses, I told him. But it can vary, depending on what you need done. Marconi nodded along with my sentences, as if encouraging me to speak. He wrinkled up his face as if carefully considering what he would say, and taking my well-being into account with grandfatherly concern. How much would it set me back to have you not investigate something? You want to pay me not to do something? Let's say I pay you your standard fee. That comes out to 1400 a day, right? 1200 actually, I corrected him. He beamed at me. An honest man is a rare treasure. 1200 a day. Let's say I pay you for two weeks' worth of work, Mr. Dresden, and you take some time off. Go catch a few movies, get some extra sleep, that sort of thing. I eyed him. And for more than $1,000 a day, you want me to... Do nothing, Mr. Dresden. Marconi smiled. Nothing at all. Just relax and put your feet up. And stay out of Detective Murphy's way. Aha. Uh -huh. Marconi didn't want me looking into Tommy Tom's murder. Interesting. I looked out the window and squinted my eyes as though thinking about it. I got all the money with me, Marconi said. Cash on the spot. I'll trust you to fulfill your end of the deal, Mr. Dresden. You come highly recommended for your honesty. Hmm... I don't know, John. I'm kind of busy to be accepting any more accounts right now. The car was almost to my office building. The car door was still unlocked. I hadn't worn my seatbelt either, just in case I needed to throw the door open and jump out. See how I think ahead? That's that wizardly intellect. And paranoia. Marconi's smile faltered. His expression became earnest. Mr. Dresden, I am quite eager to establish a positive working relationship here. If it's the money... I can offer you more. Let's say double your usual fee. He steepled his hands in front of him, and he talked, half-turning towards me. My God, I keep expecting him to tell me to go out there and win one for the Gipper. He smiled at me. How does that sound? It isn't the money, John, I told him. I lazily locked my eyes onto his. I just don't think it's going to work out. To my surprise, he didn't look away. Those who deal in magic learn to see the world in a slightly different light than everybody else. You gain a perspective you had never considered before, a way of thinking that would just never have occurred to you without exposure to the things a wizard sees and hears. When you look into someone's eyes, you see them in that other light, and for just a second, they see you in the same way. Marconi and I looked at one another. He was a soldier, a warrior behind that relaxed smile and fatherly manner. He was going to get what he wanted, and he was going to get it in the most efficient way possible. He was a dedicated man, dedicated to his goals, dedicated to his people. He never let fear affect him. He made a living on human misery and suffering, peddling in drugs and flesh and stolen goods. But he took steps to minimize that suffering because it was simply the most efficient means of running his business. 
He was furious over Tommy Tom's death, a cold and practical kind of fury that his rightful dominion had been invaded and challenged. He intended to find those responsible and deal with them in his own way, and he didn't want the police interfering. He had killed before, and would again. And it would all mean nothing more to him than a business transaction, than paying for groceries in the checkout line. It was a dry and cool place inside Gentleman Johnny Marcone, except for one dim corner. There, hidden away from his everyday thoughts, there lurked a secret shame. I couldn't quite see what it was, but I knew that somewhere in the past there was something that he would give anything to undo, would spill blood to erase. It was from that dark place that he drew his resolve, his strength. That was the way I saw him when I looked inside, past all his pretenses and defenses. And I was, on some instinctual level, certain that he had been aware of what I would see if I looked. That he had deliberately met my gaze, knowing what he would give away. That was his purpose in getting me alone. He wanted to take a peek at my soul. He wanted to see what sort of man I was. When I look into someone's eyes, into their soul, their innermost being... They can see mine in return. The things I had done, the things I was willing to do, the things I was capable of doing. Most people who did that got really pale, at least. One woman had passed out entirely. I didn't know what they saw when they looked in there. It wasn't a place I poked around much myself. John Marconi wasn't like the other people who had seen my soul. He didn't even blink an eye. He just looked and assessed, and after a moment had passed, he nodded at me as though he understood something. I got the uncomfortable impression that he had duped me, that he had found out more about me than I had about him. The first thing I felt was anger, anger at being manipulated, angry that he should presume to soul gaze upon me. Just a second later, I felt scared to death of this man. I had looked on his soul and it had been as solid and barren as a stainless steel refrigerator. It was more than unsettling. He was strong inside, savage and merciless without being cruel. He had a tiger's soul. All right, then, he said smoothly, as though nothing had happened. I won't try to force my offer on you, Mr. Dresden. The car was slowing down as it approached my building, and Hendricks pulled over in front of it, let me offer you some advice. He dropped the father to the son act and spoke in a calm and patient voice. If you don't charge for it. Thank God for wisecracks. I was too rattled to have said anything intelligent. Marconi almost smiled. I think you'll be happier if you come down with the flu for a few days. This business that Detective Murphy has asked you to look into doesn't need to be dragged into the light. You won't like what you see. It's on my side of the fence. Just let me deal with it, and it won't ever trouble you. Are you threatening me? I asked him. I didn't think he was, but I didn't want him to know that. It would have helped if my voice hadn't been shaking. No, he said frankly. I have too much respect for you to resort to something like that. They say you're the real thing, Mr. Dresden, the real Magus. They also say I'm nutty as a fruitcake. I choose which they I listen to very carefully, Marconi said. Think about what I've said, Mr. Dresden. 
I do not think our respective lines of work need overlap often. I would as soon not make an enemy of you over this matter. I clenched my jaw over my fear and spat words out at him quick and hard. You don't want to make an enemy out of me, Marconi. That wouldn't be smart. That wouldn't be smart at all. He narrowed his eyes at me, lazy and relaxed. He could meet my eyes by then without fear. We had taken a measure of one another. It would not happen in such a way again. You really should try to be more polite, Mr. Dresden, he said. It's good for business. I didn't give him an answer to that. I didn't have one that wouldn't sound frightened or stupidly macho. Instead, I told him, If you ever lose your car keys, give me a call. Don't try offering me money or threats again. Thanks for the ride. He watched me, his expression never changing, as I got out of the car and shut the door. Hendricks pulled out and drove away after giving me one last dirty look. I had soul-gazed on several people before. It wasn't the sort of thing you forgot. I had never run into someone like that, someone so cool and controlled. Even other practitioners I had met gazes with had not been that way. None of them had simply assessed me like a column of numbers and filed it away for reference in future equations. I stuck my hands in the pockets of my duster and shivered as the wind hit me. I was a wizard, throwing around real magic, I reminded myself. I was not afraid of big men and big cars. I do not get rattled by corpses blasted from life by magic more intense than anything I could manage. Really. Honest. But those dollar bill colored eyes, backed by that cool and nearly passionless soul, had me shaking as I took the stairs back up to my office. I had been stupid. He had surprised me, and the sudden intimacy of that soul gaze had startled and frightened me. All added together, it caused me to fall apart, throwing threats at him like a frightened school kid. Marconi was a predator. He practically smelled my fear. If he got to thinking I was weak, I had a feeling that polite smile and fatherly facade would vanish as thoroughly and as quickly as it had appeared. What a rotten first impression. Oh, well, at least I was going to be on time for my appointment. Monica, no last name, was standing outside my office when I got there, writing on the back of the note I had taped to my office door. I walked toward her. She was too intent upon her writing to look up. She was a good-looking woman in her mid-thirty-somethings. Ash blonde hair that I thought must be natural, after a morbid and involuntary memory of the dead woman's dye job. Her makeup was tasteful and well-applied, and her face was fair, friendly, with enough roundness of cheek to look fresh-faced and young. Enough fullness of mouth to look very feminine. She was wearing a long, full skirt of palest yellow with brown riding boots, a crisp white blouse, and an expensive-looking green cardigan over it to ward off the chill of early spring. She had to be in good shape to pull off a color combination like that, and she did it. Overall, it was a naggingly familiar look. Something like Annette Funicello or Barbara Billingsley, maybe. Wholesome and all-American. Monica? I asked. I put on my most innocent and friendly smile. She blinked at me as I approached. Oh, are you, uh, Harry... I smiled and offered her my hand. Harry Dresden, ma'am. That's me. She took my hand after a tiny pause and kept her eyes firmly focused on my chest. At this point, I was just as glad to be dealing with someone who was too nervous to risk looking at my eyes. 
I gave her a firm but gentle handshake and let go of her, brushing past her to unlock the office door and open it up. I apologize for being late. I got a call from the police that I had to look in on. You did? She asked. You mean the police... Uh, she waved her fingers instead of finishing the sentence and entered when I held the door open for her. Sometimes, I nodded, they run into something and want my take on it. What sorts of things? I shrugged and swallowed. I thought of the corpses at the Madison and felt green. When I looked up at Monica, she was studying my face, chewing on her lip nervously. She hurriedly averted her gaze. Can I get you some coffee? I asked her. I shut the door behind us, flicked on the lights. Oh, no, thank you, I'm fine. She stood there looking at my box of discarded paperbacks and holding her purse over her tummy with both hands. I thought she might scream if I said boo, so I made sure to move carefully and slowly, making myself a cup of instant coffee. I breathed in and out, going through the familiar motions until I had calmed from my encounter with Marconi. By the time I was done, so was my coffee. I went to my desk and invited her to have a seat in one of the two chairs across from me. Okay, Monica, I said. What can I do for you today? Well, uh, I told you that my husband was, was, uh, she nodded at me, gesturing. Missing, I supplied. Yes, she said with an exhalation of almost relief. But he's not mysteriously missing or anything, just gone. She flushed and stammered, like he just packed up a few things and left. But he didn't say anything to anyone, and he hasn't showed up again. I'm concerned about him. Mm-hmm, I said. How long has he been gone? This is the third day, she said. I nodded. There must be some reason why you're coming to me rather than a private investigator or the police. She blushed again. She had a good face for blushing, fair skin that colored girlishly. It was quite fetching, really. Yes, um, he had been interested in, in... Magic? Yes, he had been buying books on it in the religion section at the bookstore. Not like those Dungeon and Dragon games. The real thing. He bought some of those tarot cards. She pronounced it like carrot. Amateurs. And you think his disappearances might have had something to do with his interest? I'm not sure, she confessed. But maybe. He was very upset. He had lost his job and was under a lot of pressure. I'm worried about him. I thought whoever found him might need to be able to talk to him about all this stuff. She took a deep breath, as if the effort of completing so many sentences without a single mm had tired her. I'm still not clear on this. Why me? Why not the police? Her knuckles whitened on her purse. He packed a bag, Mr. Dresden. I think the police will just assume he left his wife and his children. They won't really look, but he didn't. He's not that way. He only wants to make a good life for us. Really, that's all he wants. I frowned at her, nervous that maybe hubby has run out on you after all, dear. Even so, I said, why come to me? Why not a private investigator? I know a reliable man if you need one. Because you know about... She gestured fitfully. About magic, I said. Monica nodded. I think it might be important. I mean, I don't know but I think it might. Where did he work? I asked her. While I spoke, I got a pad of paper out of my pocket and jotted down a few notes. Silverco, she told me. They're a trading company. 
they locate good markets for products and then advise companies where they can best spend their money. Uh-huh, I said. What is his name, Monica? She swallowed, and I saw her twitching, trying to think of something to tell me other than his name. George, she supplied at last. I looked up at her. She was staring furiously down at her hands. Monica, I said. I know this must be really hard for you. Believe me, ma'am. There are plenty of people who are nervous when they come into my office, but please hear me out. I am not going to hurt you or anyone else. What I do, I do to help people. It's true that someone with the right skills could use your names against you, but I'm not like that. I borrowed a line from Johnny Marconi. It isn't good business. She gave a nervous little laugh. <laughs> I feel so silly, she confessed. But there's so many things that I've heard about wizards. I see. And I put my pencil down and steepled my fingers in wizardly fashion. The woman was nervous and had certain expectations. I might ease her fears a little if I fulfilled some of them. I tried not to look over her shoulder at the calendar I had hanging on the wall and the red circle around the 15th of last month, late rent, need money. Even with the fee from today and what I could make in the future, it would take the city forever to pay up. Besides, I could never resist going to the aid of a lady in distress, even if she wasn't completely 100% sure that she wanted to be rescued by me. Monica, I told her. There are powers in the universe that most people don't even know about. Powers that we still don't fully understand. The men and women who work with these powers see things in a different light than regular people. They come to understand things in a slightly different way. This sets them apart. Sometimes it breeds unwarranted suspicion and fear. I know you've read books and seen movies about how horrible people like me are. And that whole suffer a witch not to live part of the Old Testament hasn't made things all roses. But we really aren't any different from anyone else. I gave her my best smile. I want to help you. But if I'm going to do that, you're going to have to give me a little trust. I promise. I give you my word that I won't disappoint you. I saw her take this in and chew on it for a while, while staring down at her hands. Victor, she said at last. Victor sells. All right, I said, picking up my pencil and duly noting it. Is there any place he might have gone that you can think of offhand? She nodded. The lake house. We have a house down by... She waved her hand. The lake. She beamed at me, and I reminded myself to be patient. In Lake Providence, over the state line, around Lake Michigan. It's beautiful up there in the autumn. Okay, then. Are you aware of any friends he might have run off to see? Family he might have visited? Anything like that? Oh, Victor wasn't on speaking terms with his family. I never knew why. He didn't talk about them, really. We've been married for ten years, and he never spoke once to them. Okay, I said, nodding that down, too. Friends, then. She fretted up her lip, a gesture that seemed familiar to her. Not really. He was friends with his boss and some people at work, but after he was fired... Mm-hmm, I said. I understand. I continued writing things down, drawing bold lines between thoughts to separate them. I spilled over to the next page before I was finished writing down facts and my observations about Monica. I like to be thorough about this kind of thing. Well, Mr. Dresden, she asked me, can you help me? I looked over the page and then nodded. I think so, Monica. 
If possible, I'd like to see the things your husband collected, which books and so on. It would help if I had a picture of him, too. I might like to take a look around your house at Lake Providence. Would that be all right? Of course, she said. She seemed relieved, but at the same time even more nervous than before. I noted down the address of the lake house and brief directions. You are aware of my fees? I asked her. I'm not cheap. It might be less costly for you to hire someone else. We've got quite a bit of savings, Mr. Dresden, she told me. I'm not worried about the money. That seemed an odd statement from her at the time, out of tune with her generally nervous manner. Well then, I told her, I charge $50 an hour plus expenses. I'll send you an itemized list of what I do, so you'll have a good idea of what I'm working on. A retainer is customary. I'm not going to guarantee that I work exclusively on your case. I try to handle each of my customers with respect and courtesy, so I can't put any one of them before another. She nodded to me emphatically and reached into her purse. She drew out a white envelope and passed it over to me. There's 500 inside, she told me. Is that enough for now? Ka-ching. $500 would take care of last month's rent and a good bit of this month's, too. I could get into this bit with nervous clients wanting to preserve the anonymity of their checking accounts for my supposed sorceress might. Cash always spends. Uh, that would be fine. Yes, I told her. I tried not to fondle the envelope. At least I wasn't crass enough to dump the money out on my desk and count it out. She drew out another envelope. He took most of his things with him, she said. At least I couldn't find them where he usually keeps them, but I did find this. There was something in the envelope making it bulge, an amulet, a ring, or a charm of some kind, I was betting. A third envelope came out of her purse. The woman must be compulsively well-organized. There's a picture of him in here and my phone number inside. Thank you, Mr. Dresden. When will you call? As soon as I know something, I told her. Probably by tomorrow afternoon or Saturday morning. Sound good? She almost looked into my eyes, caught herself, and smiled directly at my nose instead. Yes. Yes, thank you so much for your help. She glanced up at the wall. Oh, look at the time. I need to go. School's almost out. She closed her teeth over her words and flushed again as though embarrassed she had let such an important fact about her slip out. I'll do whatever I can, ma'am, I assured her, rising and walking her to the door. Thank you for your business. I'll be in touch soon. She said her goodbyes, never looking me in the face, and fled out the door. I shut it behind her and went back to the envelopes. First, the money. It was all fifties, which always look new, even when they're years old because they get so little circulation. There were ten of them. I put them in my wallet and trashed the envelope. The envelope with the photo in it was next. I took it out and regarded the picture of Monica and a man of lean and handsome features with a wide forehead and shaggy eyebrows that skewed his handsomeness off to a rather eccentric angle. His smile was whiter than white, and his skin was smooth, dark tan of someone who spends a lot of time in the sun, boating, maybe. It was a sharp contrast against Monica's paleness. Victor Sells, I presume. The phone number was written on a plain white index card that had been neatly trimmed down to fit inside the envelope. There was no name or area code, just a seven-digit number. I got out my cross-listing directory and looked it up. I noted that down as well. I wondered what had the woman expected to accomplish by only giving out first names when she'd been going to hand me a dozen other ways of finding out in any case. 
It only goes to show that people are funny when they get nervous about something. They say screwy things, make odd choices which, in retrospect, they feel amazingly foolish for making. I would have to be careful not to say anything to rub that in when I spoke to her again. I trashed the second envelope and opened the last one, turning it upside down over my desk. The brown husk of a dead, dried scorpion, glistening with some sort of preservative glaze, clicked down onto my desk. A supple braided leather cord led off from a ring set through the base of its tail, so that if it was worn it would hang head down, tail up, and curled over the dried body to point at the ground. I shuddered. Scorpions were symbolically powerful in certain circles of belief. They weren't usually symbols of anything good or wholesome either. A lot of petty, mean spells could be focused around a little talisman like that. If you wore it next to your skin, as such things were supposed to be worn, the prickly legs of the thing would be a constant poking and agitation at your chest, a continual reminder that it was there. The dried stinger of the tail tip might actually pierce the skin of anyone who tried to give the wearer a hug. Its crab-like pinchers would catch a man's chest hair or scratch at the curves of a woman's breasts. Nasty, unpleasant thing. Not evil, as such, but you sure as hell weren't likely to do happy, shining things with magic with such an item around your neck. Maybe Victor Sells had gotten involved into something real, something that had absorbed his attention. The art could do that to a person, particularly the darker aspects of it. If he had turned to it in despair after losing his job, maybe that would explain his sudden absence from his home. A lot of sorcerers or wannabe sorcerers secluded themselves in the belief that isolation would increase their ability to focus their magic. It didn't, but it did make it easier for a weak, untrained mind to avoid distractions. Or maybe it wasn't even a true talisman. Maybe it was just a curiosity, or a souvenir from some visit to the Southwest. There wasn't any way for me to tell if it was indeed a device used to improve the focus and direction of magical energies short of actually using it to attempt a spell. And I really didn't want to be using such a dubious article for a variety of good reasons. I would have to keep this little unbeauty in mind as I tried to run this man down. It might mean nothing. On the other hand, it might not. I looked up at the clock. A quarter after three. There was time to check with the local morgues to see if they had turned up any likely John Doe's. Who knew? My search might be over before day's end, and then get to the bank to deposit my money and fire off a check to my landlord. I got out my phone book and started calling up hospitals. Not really my routine line of work, but not difficult either. Except for the standard problems I had using the telephone. Static, line noise, other people's conversations being louder than mine. If something can go wrong, it will. Once I thought I saw something out of the corner of my eye, a twitch of motion from the dried scorpion that sat on my desk. I blinked and stared at it. It didn't move. Cautiously, I extended my senses toward it like an invisible hand, feeling about for any traces of enchantment or magical energy. Nothing. It was as dry of enchantment as it was of life. Never let it be said that Harry Dresden is afraid of a dry, dead bug. Creepy or not, I wasn't going to let it ruin my concentration. So I scooped it up with a corner of the phone book and popped it into the middle drawer of my desk, out of sight, out of mind. So I have a problem with creepy dead poisonous things. So sue me. McAnally's is a pub a few blocks from my office. 
I go there when I'm feeling stressed or when I have a few extra bucks to spend on a nice dinner. A lot of us fringe types do. Mac, the pub's owner, is used to wizards and all the problems that come along with us. There aren't any video games at McAnally's. There are no televisions or expensive computer trivia games. There isn't even a jukebox. Mac keeps a player piano instead. It's less likely to go haywire around us. I say pub in all the best senses of the word. When you walk in, you take several steps down into a room with a deadly combination of low clearance and ceiling fans. If you're tall like me, you walk carefully in McAnally's. There are 13 stools at the bar and 13 tables in the room. 13 windows set high in the wall in order to be above ground level let some light from the street into the place. 13 mirrors on the wall cast back reflections of the patrons in dim detail and give illusion of more space. 13 wooden columns carved with likenesses from folk tales and legends of the old world make it difficult to walk around the place without weaving the circuitous route. They also quite intentionally break up the flow of random energies dispelling to one degree or another the auras that gather around broody, grumpy wizards and keeping them from manifesting in unintentional and colorful ways. The colors were all muted, earth browns and sea greens. The first time I entered McAnally's, I felt like a wolf returning to an old favorite den. Mac makes his own beer, ale, actually, and it's the best stuff in the city. His food is cooked on a wood-burning stove, and you can damn well walk your own self over to the bar and pick up your order when it's ready, according to Mac. It's my sort of place. Since the calls to the morgues had turned up nothing, I kept a few bills out of Monica Sell's retainer and took to McAnally's. After the kind of day I had, I deserved some of Mac's ale and someone else's cooking. It was going to be a long night, too. Once I got home and started trying to figure out how whoever it was had pulled off the death spell used on Johnny Marconi's hatchet man Tommy Tom and his girlfriend Jennifer Stanton. Dresden, Mac greeted me when I sat down at the bar. The dim, comfortable room was empty, but for a pair of men, I recognized by sight at the back table playing chess. Mac is a tall, almost gangly man of indeterminate age, though there's a sense to him that speaks of enough wisdom and strength that I wouldn't venture that he was less than 50. He has squinty eyes and a smile that is rare and mischievous when it manifests. Mac never says much, but when he does, it's almost always worth listening to. Hi there, Mac, I hailed him. Been one hell of a day. Give me a steak sandwich, fries, ale. Hmm, Mac said. He opened a bottle of his ale and began to pour it warm, staring past me into the middle distance. He does that with everyone. Considering his clientele, I don't blame him. I wouldn't chance looking them in the face either. You hear what happened at the Madison? Mm, he confirmed. Nasty business. Such an inane comment apparently didn't merit even a grunted reply. Max set my drink out and turned to the stove behind the bar, checking the wood and raking it back and forth to provide even heating for it. I picked up the pre-thumb newspaper nearby and scanned the headlines. Hey, look at this. Another three-eye rampage. Jesus, this stuff is worse than crack. The article detailed the virtual demolition of a neighborhood grocery store by a pair of three-eye junkies who were convinced that the place was destined to explode and wanted to beat destiny to the punch. Mm. You ever seen anything like this? Max shook his head. They say stuff gives you a third sight, I said, reading the article. 
Both junkies had been admitted to the hospital and were in critical condition after collapsing at the scene. But you know what? Mac looked back at me from the stove while he cooked. I don't think that's possible. What a bunch of crap. Trying to sell these poor kids on the idea that they can do magic. Mac nodded at me. If it was serious stuff, the department would have already called me by now. Mac shrugged, turning back to the stove. Then he squinted up and peered into the dim reflection of the mirror behind the bar. Harry, he said, you were followed. I had been too tense for too much of the day to avoid feeling my shoulders constrict in a sudden twinge. I put both hands around my mug and brought a few phrases of quasi-Latin to mind. It never hurt to be ready to defend myself in case someone was intending to hurt me. I watched someone approach, a dim shape in the reflection cast by the ancient worn mirror. Mac went on with cooking, unperturbed, nothing much perturbed Mac. I smelled her perfume before I turned around. Why, Miss Rodriguez, I said. It's always pleasant to see you. She came to an abrupt stop a couple of paces from me, apparently disconcerted. One of the advantages of being a wizard is that people always attribute anything you do to magic if no other immediate explanation leaps to mind. She probably wouldn't think about her perfume giving her identity away when she could assign my mysterious blind identification of her to my mystical powers. Come on, I told her. Sit down. I'll get you a drink while I refuse to tell you anything. Harry, she admonished me. You don't know I'm here on business. She sat down on the bar stool next to me. She was a woman of average height and striking dark beauty, wearing a crisp business jacket and skirt, hose pumps. Her dark straight hair was trimmed in a neat cut that ended in the nape of her neck and was parted off the dark skin of her forehead, emphasizing the lazy appeal of her dark eyes. Susan, I chided her, you wouldn't be in this place if you weren't. Did you have a good time in Branson? Susan Rodriguez was a reporter for the Chicago Arcane, a yellow magazine that covered all sorts of supernatural and paranormal events throughout the Midwest. Usually, the events they covered weren't much better than Monkey Man Seen with Elvis Love Child or JFK's Mutant Ghost of Ducks Shape-Shifting Girl Scout. But once, in a great, great while, the Arcane covered something that was real. Like the unseelie incursion of 1994, when the entire city of Milwaukee had simply vanished for two hours. Gone. Government satellite photos showed a river valley covered with trees and empty of life or human habitation. All communications ceased. Then, a few hours later, there it was, back again, and no one in the city itself the wiser. She had also been hanging around my investigation in Branson the previous week. She had been tracking me ever since interviewing me for a feature story right after I'd opened up my business. I had to hand it to her. She had instincts. And enough curiosity to get her into ten kinds of trouble. She had tricked me into meeting her eyes at the conclusion of our first interview, an eager young reporter investigating an angle on her interviewee. She was the one who had fainted after we'd soul-gazed. She smirked at me. I liked her smirk. It did interesting things to her lips and hers were already attractive. You should have stayed around for the show, she said. It was pretty impressive. She pulled her purse on the bar and slid it up onto the stool beside me. No thanks, I told her. I'm pretty sure it wasn't for me. My editor loved the coverage. She's convinced it's going to win an award of some kind. I can see it now, I told her. 
Mysterious visions haunt drug-using country star. Real hard-hitting paranormal journalism, that. I glanced at her, and she met my eyes without fear. She didn't let me see if my jibe had ruffled her. I heard you got called in by the SI director today, she told me. She leaned toward me, enough that a glance down would have afforded an interesting angle to the V of her white shirt. I'd love to hear you tell me about this one, Harry. She quirked a smile at me that promised things. I almost smiled back at her. Sorry, I told her. I have a standard non-disclosure agreement with the city. Something off the record, then? She asked. Rumor has it that these killings were pretty sensational. Can't help you, Susan, I told her. Wild horses couldn't drag it out of me, etc. Just a hint, she pressed. A word of comment, something shared between two people who are very attracted to one another. Which two people would that be? She put an elbow on the counter and propped her chin in her hand, studying me through narrowed eyes and thick, long lashes. One of the things that appealed to me about her was that even though she used her femininity and charm in pursuit of her stories, she had no concept of how attractive she was. I'd seen that when I looked within her last year. Harry Dresden, she said. You are a thoroughly maddening man. Her eyes narrowed a bit further. You didn't look down my blouse even once, did you? She accused. I took a sip of my ale and beckoned Mac to pour her one as well. He did. Guilty. Most men are off balance by now, she complained. What does it take with you anyway, Dresden? I am pure of heart and mind, I told her. I cannot be corrupted. She stared at me in frustration for a moment, and then she tilted back her head to laugh. <laughs> she had a good laugh, too throaty and rich. I did look down her chest when she did that, just for a second. A pure heart and mind only takes you so far. Sooner or later, the hormones have their say, too. I mean, I'm not a teenager or anything anymore, but I'm not exactly an expert in things like this either. Call it an overwhelming interest in my professional career, but I've never had much time for dating or the fair sex in general. And when I have, it hasn't turned out too well. Susan was a known quantity. She was attractive, bright, appealing. Her motivations were clear and simple. She was honest in pursuing them. She flirted with me because she wanted information as much as because she thought I was attractive. Sometimes she got it, sometimes she didn't. This one was way too hot for Susan or the arcane to touch. And if Murphy heard I had tipped someone off about what had happened, she'd have my heart between two pieces of bread for lunch. I'll tell you what, Harry, she said. How about if I ask some questions and you just answer them with a yes or no? No, I said promptly. Damn it, I am a poor liar. And it didn't take a reporter with Susan's brains to tell it. Her eyes glittered with cheerfully malicious ambition. Was Tommy Tom murdered by a paranormal being or means? No, I said again stubbornly. No, he wasn't, she asked. Or no, it wasn't a paranormal being. I glanced at Mac as though to appeal for help. Mac ignored me. Mac doesn't take sides. Mac is so wise. No, I'm not going to answer questions, I said. Do the police have any leads, any suspects? No. Are you a suspect yourself, Harry? Disturbing thought. No, I said, exasperated. Susan, would you mind having dinner with me Saturday night? No, I... I blinked at her. What? 
She smiled at me and leaned over and kissed me on the cheek. Her lips, that I'd admired so much, felt very, very nice. Supper, she said. I'll pick you up at your place, see, around nine o'clock. Did I just miss something, I asked her. She nodded, dark eyes sparkling with humor. I'm going to take you to a fantastic dinner. Have you ever eaten at the pump room at the Ambassador East? I shook my head. Steaks you wouldn't believe, she assured me. And the most romantic atmosphere, jackets and ties required. Can you manage? Uh, yes, I said carefully. This is the answer to the question of whether or not I'll go out with you, right? No, she said with a smile. That was the answer I tricked out of you, so you're stuck there. I just want to make sure you own something besides jeans and button-down western shirts. Oh, yes, I said. Super, she repeated, and kissed me on the cheek once more, as she stood up and gathered her purse. Saturday, then? She drew back and quirked her smirky little smile at me. It was a killer look, sultry and appealing. I'll be there, with bells on. She turned and walked out, sort of turned to stare after her. My jaw slid off the bar as I did and landed on the floor. Had I just agreed to a date or an interrogation session? Probably both, I muttered. Max slapped a steak sandwich and fries down in front of me. I put down some money, morosely, and he made change. She's going to do nothing but try to trick information out of me that I shouldn't be giving her, Mac, I said. Mm-hmm, Mac agreed. Why did I say yes? Mac shrugged. She's pretty, I said. Smart, sexy. Hmm. Any red-blooded man would have done the same thing. Mm-hmm, Mac snorted. Well, maybe not you. Mac smiled a bit, mollified. Still, it's going to make trouble for me. I must be crazy to go for someone like that. I picked up my sandwich and sighed. Dumb, Mac said. I just said she was smart, Mac. Mac's face flickered into that smile, and it made him look years younger, almost boyish. Not her, he said. You. I ate my dinner. I had to agree he was right. This threw a wrench into my plans. My best idea for poking around the cell's lake house and getting information had to be carried out at night. I had already had tomorrow night slated for a talk with Bianca, since I had a feeling Murphy and Carmichael would fail to turn up any cooperation from the Vampirus. That meant I would have to drive out to Lake Providence tonight, since Saturday night was now occupied by a date with Susan, or at least the pre-midnight portion was. My mouth went dry when I considered that maybe the rest of the night might be occupied, too. One never knew. She had dizzied me and made me look like an idiot. She was probably going to try every trick she knew to drag more information out of me for the Monday morning release of the Arcane. On the other hand, she was sexy, intelligent, and at least a little attracted to me. That indicated that more might happen than just talk and dinner, didn't it? The question was, did I really want that to happen? I had been a miserable failure in relationships ever since my first love went sour. I mean, a lot of teenage guys fail in their first relationships. Not many of them murdered the girl involved. I shied away from that line of thought, lest it bring up too many old memories. I left McAnally's after Mac had handed me a doggy bag with the grunt of Mr. by way of explanation. The chess game in the corner was still in progress. 
both players puffing up a sweet-smelling smog cloud from their pipes. I tried to figure out how to deal with Susan while I walked back to my car. Did I need to clean up my apartment? Did I have all those ingredients for the spell I would cast at the lake house later tonight? Would Murphy go through the roof when I talked to Bianca? I could still feel Susan's kiss lingering on my cheek as I got in the car. I shook my head, bewildered. They say we wizards are subtle, but believe you me, we are nothing, nothing at all on women. Mister was nowhere to be seen when I got home, but I left the food in his dish anyway. He would eventually forgive me for my getting home late. I collected the things that I would need for my kitchen, fresh baked bread with no preservatives, honey, milk, a fresh apple, a sharp silver pen knife, a tiny dinner set of a plate, bowl, and a cup that I had carved myself from a block of teak wood. I went back out to my car. The beetle isn't really blue anymore. Since both doors have been replaced, one with the green clone and one with the white one, and the hood of the storage trunk in front had to be replaced with a red duplicate, but the name stuck anyway. Mike is a super mechanic. He never asked questions about the burns that slagged a hole in the front hatch or the claw marks that ruined both doors. You can't pay for service like that. I revved up the Beetle and drove down I-94 around the shore of Lake Michigan, crossing through Indiana briefly and then crossing over the state line into Michigan itself. Lake Providence is an expensive, high-class community with big houses and sprawling estates. It isn't cheap to own land there. Victor Sells must have been doing well in his former position at Silverco to afford a place out that way. The lakeshore drive wound in and out among thick, tall trees and rolling hills down to the shore. The properties were well spread out, several hundred yards between them. Most of them were fenced and had gates on the right side of the road, away from the lake as I drove north. The Sells house was the only one I saw on the lake side of the drive. A smooth gravel lane lined by trees led back from the lakeshore drive to the Sells house. A peninsula jutted out onto the lake, leaving enough room for the house and a small dock at which no boats were moored. The house was not a large one by the standards of the rest of the Lake Providence community. Built on two levels, it was a very modern dwelling. A lot of glass and wood that was made to look like something more synthetic than wood by the way it had been smoothed and cut and polished. A drive curved around the back of the house, where a driveway big enough to host a five-on-five game of basketball around a backboard erected to one side was overlooked by a wooden deck leading off to the second level of the house. I drove the blue beetle around to the back of the house and parked there. My ingredients were in a black nylon backpack, and I picked that up and brought it with me as I got out of the car and stretched my legs. The breeze coming upslope from the lake was cool enough to make me shiver a little, and I drew my mantle duster closed across my belly. My first impressions are important, and I wanted to listen to what my instincts said about the house. I stopped for a long moment and just stared at it. My instincts must have been holding out for another bottle of Max Ale. They had little to say, other than that the place looked like a pricey little dwelling that had hosted a family through many a vacation weekend. Well, where my instincts fail, intellect must venture. Almost everything was fairly new. The grass around the house had not grown long enough this winter to require cutting. The basketball net was stretched out and loose enough to show that it had been used fairly often. The curtains were all drawn. On the grass behind the deck, something red gleamed 
and I went beneath the deck to retrieve it. It was a plastic film canister, red with a gray cap, the kind you keep on a roll of film in when you send it to the processors. Film canisters were good for holding various ingredients I used sometimes. I tucked it in my duster pocket and continued my inspection. The place didn't look like a family dwelling, really. It looked like a rich man's love nest, a secluded little getaway nestled back in the trees of a peninsula and safe from spying eyes, or an ideal location for a novice sorcerer to come out and try his fledgling abilities safe from interruptions, a good place for Victor Sells to set up shop and practice. I made a quick circuit of the house, tried the front and rear doors, and even the door up on the deck that led presumably to the kitchen. All were locked. Locks weren't really an obstacle, but Monica Sells hadn't invited me to actually take a look inside the house, just around it. It's bad juju to go tromping into people's houses uninvited. One of the reasons vampires as a rule don't do it, they have enough trouble just holding themselves together outside of the never-never. It isn't harmful to a human wizard like me, but it can really impair anything you try to do with magic. Also, it just isn't polite. Like I said, I'm an old-fashioned sort of guy. Of course, the Tektronic Securities control panel that I could see through the front window had some say in my decision. Not that I couldn't hex it down to a useless bundle of plastic and wires, but a lot of security systems will cause an alarm with their contact company if they abruptly stop working without notice. It would be a useless exercise. In any case, the real information was to be had elsewhere. Still, something nagged me. Sense of not quite emptiness to the house. On a hunch, I knocked on the front door several times. I even rang the bell. No one came to answer the door, and no lights were on inside. I shrugged and walked back to the rear of the house, passing a number of empty trash cans as I did. Now that was a bit odd. I mean, I would expect a little something in the trash, even if someone hadn't been there in a while. Did the garbage man come all the way down the drive to pick up the trash cans? That didn't seem likely. If the Selses had come out to the house for a weekend and wanted the trash emptied, it would stand to reason that they would have had to leave it out by the drive near the road as they left, which would seem to imply that the garbage men would leave the empty trash cans out by the road. Someone must have brought them back to the house. Of course, it needn't have been Victor Sells. It could have been a neighbor or something. Or maybe he tipped the garbage men to carry the cans back away from the road. But it was something to go on. A little hint that maybe the house hadn't been empty all week. I left the house behind me and walked towards the lake. The night was breezy but clear and a bit cold. The tall old trees creaked and groaned beneath the wind. It was still early for the mosquitoes to be too bad. The moon was waxing towards full overhead, with the occasional clouds slipping past her like a gauzy veil. It was a perfect night for catching fairies. I swept an area of dirt not far from the lake shore, clear of leaves and sticks, and took the silver knife from the backpack. Using the handle, I drew a circle in the earth, then covered it up with leaves and sticks again, marking the location of the circle's perimeter in my head. I was careful to focus in concentration on the circle, without actually letting my power slip into it and spoil the trap. Then, working carefully, I prepared the bait by setting out a little cup and bowl. I poured a thimbleful of milk into the cup and dabbed the bowl full of honey from the little plastic bear in my backpack. 
Then I tore a little piece of bread from the loaf I brought with me and pricked my thumb with a knife. In the silver light of the moon, the bit of dark blood welled up against the skin, and I touched it dainty to the underside of the coarse bread, letting it absorb the blood. Then I set the bread, bloody side down, on the tiny plate. My trap was set. I gathered up my equipment and retreated to the cover of the trees. There are two parts of magic you have to understand to catch a fairy. One of them is the concept of true names. Everything in the whole world has its own name. Names are unique sounds and cadences of words that are attached to one specific individual, sort of like a theme music. If you know something's name, you can associate yourself with it in a magical sense. Almost in the same way a wizard can reach out and touch someone if he possesses a lock of their hair or fingernail clippings or blood. If you know something's name, you can create a magical link to it, just as you can call someone up to talk to them if you know their phone number. Just knowing the name isn't good enough, though. You have to know exactly how to inflect and say it. Ask two John Franklin Smiths to say their name for you, and you'll get subtle differences in the tone and pronunciation, each one unique to its owner. Wizards tend to collect names of creatures, spirits, and people like some kind of huge Rolodex. You never know when it'll come in handy. The other part of magic you need to know is the magic circle theory. Most magic involves a circle of one kind or another. Drawing a circle sets a local limit on what a wizard is trying to do. It helps him refine his magic, focus and direct it more clearly. It does this by creating a sort of screen, defined by a perimeter of the circle that keeps random magical energy from going past it, containing it within the circle so that it can be used. To make a circle, you draw it out on the ground or close hands with a bunch of people or walk about spreading incense or any number of other methods while focusing on your purpose in drawing it. Then you invest it with a little spark of energy to close the circuit, and it's ready. One other thing such a circle does. It keeps magical creatures like fairies or even demons from getting past it. Neat, huh? Usually this is used to keep them out. It's a bit trickier to set up a circle to keep them in. That's where the blood comes into play. With blood comes power. If you take in some of someone else's blood, there's a metaphysical significance to it, a sort of energy. It's minuscule if you aren't really trying to get energy that way, the way vampires do, but it's enough to close a circle. Now you know how it's done. But I wouldn't recommend you try it at home. You don't know what to do when something goes wrong. I retreated to the trees and called the name of the particular fairy I wanted. It was a rolling series of syllables. Quite beautiful, really. Especially since the fairy went by the name of Toot Toot every time I encountered him before. I pushed my will out along with the name. Just made it a call. Something that would be subtle enough to make him wander this way of his own accord. Or at least that was my theory. What was his name? Please. You think wizards just give information like that away? You don't know what I went through to get it. About ten minutes later, Toot came flickering in over the water of Lake Michigan. At first I mistook him for a reflection of moon on the side of the softly rolling waves of the lake. Toot was maybe six inches tall. He had silvery dragonfly's wings sprouting from his back and the pale, beautiful, tiny humanoid form that echoed the splendor of the Fey Lords. A silver nimbus of ambient light surrounded him. His hair was a shaggy, silken little mane, like a bird of paradise's plumes, and was a pale magenta. 
Toot loved bread and milk and honey, a common vice of the lesser fay. They aren't usually willing to take on the nest of bees to get to the honey, and there's been a real dearth of milk in the never-never since high-tech dairy farms took over most of the industry. Needless to say, they don't grow their own wheat, harvest it, thresh it, and then mill it into flour to make bread either. Toot alighted on the ground with caution, scanning around the trees. He didn't see me. I saw him wipe his mouth and walk in a slow circle around the miniature dining set, one hand rubbing greedily at his stomach. Once he took the bread and closed the circle, I'd be able to bargain information for his release. Toot was a lesser spirit in the area, sort of a dock worker of the never-never. If anyone had seen anything of Victor Sells, Toot would have, or would know someone who had. Toot dithered for a while, fluttering back and forth around the meal, but slowly getting closer. Fairies and honey, moths and flame. Toot had fallen for this several times before, and it wasn't in the nature of a fay to keep memories for very long, or to change their essential natures. All the same, I held my breath. The fairy finally hunkered down, picked up the bread, dipped it in the honey, and then greedily gobbled it down. The circle closed with a little snap that occurred just at the edge of my hearing. The effect on Toot was immediate. He screamed a shrill little scream like a trapped rabbit and took off towards the lake in a buzzing flurry of wings. At the perimeter of the circle, he smacked into something as solid as a brick wall, and a little puff of silver motes exploded out from him in a cloud. Toot grunted and fell onto a little fairy ass on the earth. I should have known, he exclaimed as I approached from the trees. His voice was high-pitched, but more like a little kid's than an exaggerated kind of fairy voices I've heard in cartoons. Now I remember where I've seen those plates before. You ugly, sneaky, ham-handed, big-nosed, flat-footed mortal worm. Hiya, Toot, I told him. Do you remember our deal from last time, or do we need to go over it again? Toot glared defiantly up at me and stomped his foot on the ground. More silver fairy dust puffed out from the impact. Release me, he demanded, or I will tell the queen. If I don't release you, I pointed out, you can't tell the queen. And you know just as well as I do what she would say about any dewdrop fairy who was silly enough to get himself caught with the lure of bread and milk and honey. Toot crossed his arms defiantly over his chest. I warn you, mortal, release me now or you will feel the awful, terrible, irresistible might of fairy magic. I will rot your teeth from your head, take your eyes from their sockets, fill your mouth with dung and your ears with worms. Hit me with your best shot, I told him. After that, we can talk about what you need to get out of that circle. I called his bluff. I always did, but he probably wouldn't remember the details very well. If you live a few hundred years, you tend to forget the little things. Toot sulked and kicked up a little spray of dirt with one tiny foot. You could at least pretend to be afraid, Harry. Sorry, Toot, I don't have the time. Time, time, Toot complained. Is that all you mortals can ever think about? Everyone's complaining about time. The whole city rushes left and right, screaming about being late and honking horns. You people used to have it right, you know. I bore the lecture with good nature. Toot could never keep his mind on the same subject long enough to be really trying in any case. Why, I remember the folk who lived here before you pale, wheezy guys came in. And they never complained about ulcers or... Toot's eyes wandered to the bread and milk and honey again and glinted. He sauntered that way and then snatched the remaining bread, sopped up all the honey with it, and 
eating it with greedy bird-like motions. This is good stuff, Harry. None of that funny stuff in it we get sometimes. Preservatives, I said. Whatever. Toot drank the milk down, too, in a long pull, and then promptly fell down on his back, patted at his rounded tummy. All right, he said. Now, let me out. Not yet, Toot. I need something first. Toot scowled up at me. You wizards, always needing something. I really could do the thing with the dung, you know. He stood up and folded his arms haughtily over his chest, looking up at me as though I weren't a dozen times taller than he. Very well, he said, his tone lofty. I have deigned to grant you a single request of some small nature for the generous gift of your cuisine. I worked to keep a straight face. That's very kind of you. Toot sniffed and somehow managed to look down his little pug nose at me. It is in my nature to be both benevolent and wise. I nodded as though this were a very great wisdom. Uh-huh. Look, Toot, I need to know if you were around this place for the last few nights or know someone who was. I'm looking for someone, and maybe he came here. And if I tell you, Toot said, I take it you will disassemble this circle which has, by some odd coincidence, no doubt, made its way around me? It would be only reasonable, I said in all seriousness. Toot seemed to consider it, as though he might be inclined not to cooperate, and then nodded. Very well. You will have the information you wish. Release me. I narrowed my eyes. Are you sure? Do you promise? Toot stamped his foot again, scattering more silver dust motes. Harry, you are ruining the drama! I folded my arms. I want to hear you promise... Toot threw up his hands. Fine, fine, fine. I promise, I promise, I promise. I'll dig up whatever you want to know. He started to buzz about the circle in great agitation, wings lifting him easily into the air. Let me out, let me out. A promise made thrice is as close to absolute truth as you can get from a fairy. I went quickly to the circle and scuffed over the line drawn in the dirt with my foot, willing the circle to part, which it did with a little hiss of released energy. Toot streaked out over Lake Michigan's waters again, a miniature silver comet, and vanished in a twinkling just like Santa Claus. Though I should say that Santa is a much bigger and more powerful fairy than Toot, and I don't know his true name, anyway. You never see me trying to nab St. Nick in a magic circle, even if I did. Even I don't have stones that big. I waited around, walking about to keep from falling asleep. If I did, Toot would be perfectly within his rights as a fairy to fulfill his promise by telling me the information while I was sleeping. And given that I had just now captured and humiliated him, he'd probably do something to even the scales. Two weeks from now, he wouldn't even remember it. But if I let him have a free shot at me tonight, I might wake up with an ass's head, and I don't think that would be good for business. So I paced and waited. Toot usually took about half an hour to round up whatever it was I wanted to know. Sure enough, half an hour later, he came sparkling back in and buzzed around my head, drizzling fairy dust from his blurring wings at my eyes. Huh, Harry, he said. I did it. What'd you find out, Toot? Guess. I snorted. No. Oh, come on, just a little guess. I scowled, tired, irritated, but tried not to show it. Toot couldn't help being what he was. Toot, it's late. You promised to tell me. No fun at all he complained. No wonder you can't get a date unless someone wants to know something from you. I blinked, and he chortled in glee. Ha! <laughs> I love it. 
We're watching you, Harry Dresden. Now that was disconcerting. I had a sudden image of a dozen fairy voyeurs lingering around my apartment windows and peering inside. I'd have to take precautions to make sure they couldn't do that. Not that I was afraid of them or anything, just in case. Just tell me, Toot, I sighed. Incoming, he shrilled, and I held out my hand, fingers flat and palm up. He alighted in the center of my palm. I could barely feel his weight, but the sense, the aura of him ran through my skin like a tiny electric current. He stared fearlessly at my eyes. The Fae have no souls to gaze upon, and they could not fathom a mortal soul, even if they could see it. Okay, Toot said. I talked to Blue Blossom, who talked to Red Nose, who talked to Mago Aspens. Who said that? Golden Eyes said that he was riding the pizza car when it came here last night. Toot thrust out his chest proudly. Pizza car? I asked, bewildered. Pizza! Toot cried jubilant. Pizza, pizza, pizza! His wings fluttered again, and I tried to blink the damn fairy dust out of my eyes before I started sneezing. Fairies like pizza? I asked. Oh, Harry, Toot breathed. Haven't you ever had pizza before? Of course I have, I said. Toot looked wounded. And you didn't share? I sighed. Look, maybe I can bring you guys some pizza sometime soon to thank you for your help. Toot leaped about in glee, hopping from one fingertip to another. Yes, yes, wait until I tell them. We'll see who laughs at Toot Toot next time. Toot, I said, trying to calm him. Did he see anything else? Toot tittered, his expression sly and suggestive. He said that there were mortals sporting, and they needed pizza to regain their strength. Which delivery place, Toot? The fairy blinked and stared at me as though I were hopelessly stupid. Harry, the pizza truck. And then he darted off skyward, vanishing into the trees above. I sighed and nodded. Toot wouldn't know the difference between Domino's and Pizza Hut. He had no frame of reference and couldn't read. Most fairies were studiously adverse to print. So I had two pieces of information. One, someone had ordered pizza to be delivered here. That meant two things. First, that someone was here last night. Second, that someone had seen them and had talked to them. Maybe I could track down the pizza driver and ask if he had seen Victor Sells. The second piece of information had been Toot's reference to sporting. Fairies didn't think too much of mortals' ideas of sporting, unless there was a lot of nudity and lust involved. They have a penchant for shadowing necking teenagers and playing tricks on them. So Victor had been here with a lover of some kind for there to be any sport going on. I was beginning to think that Monica Sells was in denial. Her husband wasn't wandering around learning to be a sorcerer, spooky scorpion talismans notwithstanding. He was lurking about his love nest with a girlfriend, like any other husband bored with a timid and domestic wife might do under pressure. It wasn't admirable, but I guess I could understand the motivation that could cause it. The only problem was going to be telling Monica about what I discovered. I had the feeling that she wasn't going to want to listen to what I had found out. I picked up the little plate and bowl and cup and put them back into my black nylon backpack, along with a silver knife. My legs ached from too much walking and standing about. I was looking forward to getting home and getting some sleep. The man with a naked sword in his hands appeared out of the darkness, without a warning rustle of sound or whiff of magic to announce his presence. He was tall like me, but broad and heavy-chested, 
and he carried his weight with a ponderous sort of dignity. Perhaps fifty years old, his listless brown hair going gray in uneven patches. He wore a long black coat, a lot like mine, but without the mantle, and his jacket and pants, too, were done in dark colors, charcoal and deep blue. His shirt was crisp, pure white, the color that you usually only see on tuxedos. His eyes were gray, touched with crow's feet at the corners and dangerous. Moonlight glinted off those eyes in the same shade it did from the brighter silver of the sword's blade. He began to walk deliberately toward me, speaking in a quiet voice as he did. Harry Blackstone Copperfield Dresden, irresponsible use of true names for summoning and binding others to your will violates the fourth law of magic, the man said. I do remind you that you are under the doom of Damocles. No further violations of the law will be tolerated. The sentence for further violation is death by the sword to be carried out at once. Have you ever been approached by a grim-looking man carrying a naked sword with a blade about ten miles long in his hand in the middle of the night beneath the stars on the shores of Lake Michigan? If you have, seek professional help. If you have not, then believe me, it can scare the bejesus out of you. I took in a quick breath and had to work not to put it into a quasi-Latin phrase on the exhale that would have set the man's body on fire and reduce him to a mound of ashes. I react badly to fear. I don't usually have the good sense to run or hide. I just try to smash whatever it is that is making me afraid. It's a primitive sort of thing, and one that I don't question too much. But reflex-based murder seemed a tad extreme, so rather than setting him afire, I nodded to the man instead. Evening, Morgan. You know as well as I do that those laws apply to mortals, not fairies. Especially for something as trivial as I just did. And I didn't break the fourth law... He had a choice whether to take my deal or not. Morgan's sour, leathery face turned a bit more sour. The lines at the corners of his mouth stretched and becoming deeper. That's a technicality dressed in a pair of them. His hands, broad and strong, resettled their grip upon the sword he held. His unevenly graying hair was pulled into a ponytail in the back, like Sean Connery's in some of his movies, except that Morgan's face was too pinched and thin to pull it off. Your point being... I did my best to keep from looking nervous or impressed. Truth be told, I was both. Morgan was my warden, assigned to me by the White Council to make sure I didn't break or bend any of the laws of magic. He hung about and spied on me, mostly, and usually came sniffing about after I'd cast a spell of some kind. I would be damned if I was going to let the White Council's guard dog see any fear out of me. Besides, he would take it as a sign of guilt. In the true spirit of paranoid fanatics everywhere... So all I had to do was keep a straight face and get out before my weariness made me slip up. Morgan was one of the deadliest evocators in the world. He wasn't bright enough to question his loyalties to the council, and he could do quick and dirty magic like few others could. Quick and dirty enough to rip the hearts out of Tommy Tom and Jennifer Stanton's chests, in fact, if he wanted to. My point, he said, scowling, is that it is my assigned duty to monitor your use of power and to see to it that you do not abuse it. I'm on a missing persons case, I said. All I did was to call up a dewdrop fairy to get some information. Come on, Morgan. Everybody calls up fairies now and then. There's no harm in it. It's not as though I'm mind-controlling the things, just leaning on them a little. <sighs> Technicality, Morgan growled. I stuck out my chin at him belligerently. We were of a height, though he outweighed me by a hundred pounds. 
I could pick better people to antagonize, but he really got under my skin. A technicality I'm prepared to hide wildly behind. So, unless you want to convene a meeting of the council to call me on it, we can just drop the discussion right here. I'm pretty sure it will only take them about two days to cancel all their plans, make travel arrangements, and then get here. I can put you up until then. I mean, you'll be dragging a bunch of really crotchety old men away from their experiments and things for nothing, but if you really think it's necessary... Morgan scowled at me. No, it isn't worth it. He opened his dark trench coat and slid the sword away into its scabbard. I relaxed a little. The sword wasn't the most dangerous thing about him, not by a long shot, but it was the symbol of his authority, given to him by the White Council. And if rumors were true, it was enchanted to cut through the magical spells of anyone resisting him. I didn't want things ever to go far enough for me to find out if the rumors were true. I'm glad we agree about something, I said. Nice seeing you again. I started to walk past him. Morgan put one of those big hands on my arm as I went by, and his fingers closed about it. I'm not finished with you, Dresden. I didn't dare mess around with Morgan when he was acting in his role as warden of the White Council, but he wasn't wearing that hat now. Once he'd put that sword away, he was acting on his own, without any more official authority than any other man, or at least that was the technical truth. Morgan was big on technicalities. He had scared the heck out of me and annoyed the heck out of me in rapid succession. Now he was trying to bully me. I hate bullies. So I took a calculated risk, used my free hand, and hit him as hard as I could in the mouth. I think the blow startled him more than anything. He took a step back, letting go of my arm in surprise, and just blinked at me. He put one hand to his mouth, and when he drew his fingers away, there was blood on them. I planted my feet and faced him, without meeting his eyes. Don't touch me. Morgan continued to stare at me, and then I saw anger creep over his face, set his jaw, make the veins at his temple stand out. How dare you, he said. How dare you strike me? It wasn't so hard, I said. And if you've got council business with me, I'm willing to give you whatever respect is your due. When you come on strong to me on personal business, I don't have to put up with it. I saw the steam coming out of his ears as he molded over. He looked for a reason to come after me and realized he didn't have one, according to the laws. He wasn't too bright. Did I mention that already? And he was a big one for following the laws. You're a fool, Dresden, he sputtered finally. An arrogant little fool. Probably, I told him. I tensed myself to move quickly if necessary. I may not like to run away from whatever scares me, but I try not to fight hopeless battles either. And Morgan had me by years of experience, and a hundred pounds at least. There was no law of magic that protected me from him and his fists either. And if that occurred to him, he might decide to do something about it. That punch I'd landed had been lucky, coming out of the blue. I wouldn't get away with it again. Someone killed two people with sorcery last night, Dresden. I think it was you. And when I find out you did it, and can trace it back to you, don't think you're going to live long enough to cast the same spell at me. Morgan wiped the blood with one big fist. It was my turn to blink. I tried to shift mental gears to keep up with the change in subject. Morgan thought I was the killer. And since Morgan didn't do too much of his own thinking, that meant that the White Council thought that I was the killer. Holy shit! Of course it made sense. From Morgan's narrow and single-minded point of view, a wizard had killed someone. I was a wizard, who had already been convicting of killing another with magic. 
even if the self-defense clause had kept me from being executed. Cops looked for people who had already committed crimes before they started looking for other culprits. Morgan was just another kind of cop, as far as I was concerned. And as far as he was concerned, I was just one more dangerous con. You're not serious, I told them. You think I did it? He sneered at me. His voice was contemptuous, confident, and seethed with absolute conviction. Don't try to hide it, Dresden. I'm sure you think you're clever enough to come up with something innovative that we hidebound old men won't be able to trace, but you're wrong. We'll determine how you did it, and we'll follow it back to you. And when we do, I'll be there to make sure you never hurt anyone again. Knock yourself out, I told him. It was hard, really hard, to keep my voice as blithe as I wanted it to sound. I didn't do it, but I'm helping the police to find the man who did. The police? Morgan asked. He narrowed his eyes as though gauging my expression. As if they could have any authority on this matter. It won't do you any good. Even if you do set someone up to take the fall for you under mortal law, the White Council will see that justice is done. His eyes glittered, fanatic bright, underneath the stars. Whatever. Look, if you find out something about the killer, anything that could help the cops out, would you give me a call? Morgan looked at me with profound distaste. You ask me to warn you when we are closing in on you, Dresden? You are young, but I never thought you stupid. I bit back the obvious comment that leapt to mind. Morgan was on the edge of outrage already. If I'd realized how rabid he was to catch me slipping, I wouldn't have added more fuel to his fire by hitting him in the mouth. Okay, I probably would have still hit him in the mouth, but I wouldn't have done it quite so hard. Good night, Morgan, I told him. I started to walk away again before I could let my mouth get me into more trouble. He moved faster than I would have given a man his age credit for. His fist went across my jaw at approximately a million miles an hour, and I spun down to the dirt like a string-cut puppet. For several long moments, I was unable to do anything at all, even breathe. Morgan loomed over me. We'll be watching you, Dresden. He turned and started walking away, the shadows of the evening quickly swallowing up his black coat. His voice drifted back to me. We'll find out what really happened. I didn't dare spout out a snappy comeback. I felt my jaw with my fingers and made sure it wasn't broken before I stood up and walked back to the beetle, my legs feeling loose and watery. I fervently hoped that Morgan would find out what really happened. It would keep the White Council from executing me for breaking the first law, for one thing. I could feel his eyes on my back all the way to the beetle. Damn that Morgan. He didn't have to take quite so much pleasure in being assigned to spy on me. I had a sinking feeling that anywhere I went over the next few days, he would be likely to turn up, watching. He was like a big cartoon tomcat waiting outside the mouse hole for a little mouse to stick its nose out so he could smash it flat with one big paw. I was feeling a lot like that little mouse. I let that analogy cheer me up a little bit. The cartoon cats always seem to get the short end of the stick in the final analysis. Maybe Morgan would, too. Part of the problem was that seeing Morgan always brought up too many memories of my angsty teenage days. That's when I started to learn magic, when my mentor had tried to seduce me into black wizardry, and when he had attempted to kill me when he failed. I killed him instead, mostly by luck, but he was just as dead, and I'd done it with sorcery. I broke the first law of magic, thou shalt not kill. There's only one sentence, if someone is found guilty, and one sword that they use to carry it out.
The White Council commuted the death sentence because tradition demands that a wizard can resort to the use of deadly force if he is defending his own life or the lives of the defenseless, and my claim that I had been attacked first could not be contested by my master's corpse. So instead, they stuck me on a kind of accelerated probation. One strike and I was out. There were some wizards who thought that the judgment against me was a ludicrous injustice. I happened to be one of them, but my vote didn't really count. And others who thought that I should have been executed regardless of extenuating circumstances. Morgan belonged to the latter group. Just my luck. I was feeling more than a bit surly at the entire White Council, benevolent intentions aside. I guess it only made sense that they suspected me, and God knows I'd been a thorn in their side, flying in the face of tradition by practicing my art openly. There were plenty of people in the White Council who might well want me dead. I would have to start being more careful. I rolled down the Beatles' windows on the way back to the Chicago to help me stay awake. I was exhausted but my mind was racing around like a hamster in an exercise wheel, working furiously, getting nowhere. The irony was thick enough to make my tongue curl. The White Council suspected me of the killings, and if no other suspect came forward, I was going to take the rap. Murphy's investigation had just become very, very important to me. But to pursue the investigation, I would have to figure out how the killer had pulled off that spell. And to do that... I would have to indulge in highly questionable research that would probably be enough to get me the death sentence all by itself. <laughs> Catch-22. If I had any respect at all for Morgan's intelligence, I would have suspected him of pulling off the killings himself and setting me up to take the blame. But that just didn't track. Morgan might twist and bend the rule to get what he saw as justice, but he never blatantly violated them. But if not Morgan, then who would have done it? There just weren't all that many people who could get enough power into that kind of spell to make it work. Unless there was some flaw in the quasi-physics that governed magic that let hearts explode more easily than other things. And I wouldn't know that until I'd pursued the forbidden research. Bianca would have more information on who might have done it. She had to. I had already planned on talking to the vampirus, but Morgan's visit had made it a necessity rather than a mere priority. Murphy was not going to be thrilled that I was thrusting myself into her side of the investigation. And, better and better, because White Council business was all hush-hush to non-wizards, I wouldn't be able to explain to her why I was doing it. Further joy. You know, sometimes I think someone up there really hates me. By the time I got home, it was two o'clock in the morning. The clock in the Beetle didn't work, of course. But I made a pretty good guess from the position of the stars and the moon and was strung out, weary, and my nerves were stretched as tight as guitar strings. I didn't think sleep was likely, so I decided to do a little alchemy to help me unwind. I'd often wished I'd had some suave and socially acceptable hobby that I could fall back on in times like this. You know, play the violin, or was it the viola, like Sherlock Holmes, or maybe twiddle away on the pipe organ like the Disney version of Captain Nemo, but I don't. I'm sort of the arcane equivalent of a classic computer geek. I do magic in one form or another, and that's pretty much it. I really need to get a life one of these days. I live in the basement apartment beneath a big, roomy old house that's been divided up into lots of different apartments. The basement and sub-basement below it are both mine, which is sort of neat. 
I'm the only tenant living on two floors, and my rent is cheaper than all the people who have whole windows. The house is full of creaks and sighs and settling boards, and time and lives have worn their impressions into the wood and the brick. I can hear all the sounds, all the character of the place, above and around me, all through the night. It's an odd place, but it sings in the darkness and is, in its own quirky little way, alive. It's home. Mister was waiting for me at the bottom of the stairs that led down to the apartment's front door. Mister is an enormous gray cat. I mean, enormous. There are dogs smaller than Mister. He weighs in at just over thirty pounds, and there isn't an undue amount of fat on his frame. I think maybe his father was a wild cat or a lynx or something. I had found Mister in a garbage can about three and a half years before, a mewling kitten. With his tail torn off by a dog or a car, I was never sure which. But Mister hated both, and would either attack or flee from them on sight. Mister had recovered his dignity over the past few months, and shortly came to believe that he was the apartment's tenant, and that I was someone he barely tolerated to share the space with him. Right now, he looked up and meowed at me in an annoyed tone. I thought you had a hot date, I told him. He sauntered over me and rammed one shoulder playfully against my knee. I wavered, recovered my balance, and unlocked the door. Mister, as was his due, entered before I did. My apartment is a studio, one not too large room with a kitchenette in one corner and a fireplace to one side. There's a door that leads to the other room, my bedroom and bathroom, and then there's the hinged door in the floor that goes down to the sub basement where I keep my lab. I've got things pretty heavily textured. There are multiple carpets on the floor, tapestries on the windows, and a collection of knickknacks and oddities on every available surface. My staff and my sword cane in the corner, and several bulging bookshelves, which I really will organize one day. Mister went to his spot before the fireplace and demanded that it be made warm. I obliged him with a fire and lit a lamp as well. Oh, I have lights and so on, but they foul up so often it almost isn't worth turning them on. And I'm not even about to take chances with a gas heater. I stick to the simple things: the fireplace and my candles and lamps. I have a special charcoal stove and a vent to take most of the smoke out, though the whole place smells of wood smoke and charcoal a little, no matter what I do. I took off my duster and got out my heavy flannel robe before I went down into the lab. That's why wizards wear robes. I swear to you, it's just too damn cold down in the lab to go without one. I clambered down the ladder to the lab, carrying my candle with me, and lit a few lamps, a pair of burners, and a kerosene heater in the corner. Lights came up and revealed a long table in the center of the room, other tables against three of the walls around it, with a clear space at one end of the room where a brass circle had been laid out on the floor and fastened into the cement with a U-shaped bolts. Shelves of the tables were crowded with empty cages, boxes, Tupperware jars, cans. Containers of all descriptions, a pair of unusual antlers, a couple of fur pelts, several musty old books, a long row of notebooks filled with my own cramped writing, and a bleached white human skull. Bob, I said. I started clearing space off the center table, dumping boxes and grocery sacks and plastic tubs over the brass circle on the floor. I needed time to work. Bob, wake up. There was a moment of silence while I started getting some things down from the shelves. Bob, I said louder. Come on, lazy bones. A pair of lights came up in the empty sockets of the skull, orangish, flickering like candle flames. It isn't enough, the skull said, that I have to wake up. 
I have to wake up to bad puns. What is it about you that you have to make bad puns? Stop whining, I told them cheerfully. We've got work to do. Bob the Skull grumbled something in old French, I think, though I got lost when he got to the anatomical improbabilities of bullfrogs. He yawned. His bony teeth rattled when his mouth clicked closed again. Bob wasn't really a human skull. He was a spirit of air, sort of like a fairy, but different. He made his residence inside the skull that had been prepared for him several hundred years ago, and it was his job to remember things. For obvious reasons, I can't use a computer to store information and keep track of the slowly changing laws of quasi-physics. He had worked with dozens of wizards over the years, and it had given him a vast repertoire of knowledge. That, and a really cocky attitude. Blasted wizards, he mumbled. I can't sleep, so we're going to make a couple of potions. Sound good? Like I have a choice, Bob said. What's the occasion? I brought Bob up to speed on what had happened that day. He whistled, no easy trick without lips, and said, Sounds sticky. Pretty sticky, I agreed. Tell you what, he said. Let me out for a ride, and I'll tell you how to get out of it. That made me wary. Bob, I let you out once, remember? He nodded dreamily, scraping a bone on wood shelf. The sorority house, I remember. I snorted and started some water to boiling over one of the burners. You're supposed to be a spirit of intellect. I don't understand why you're obsessed with sex. Bob's voice got defensive. It's an academic interest, Harry. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe I don't think it's fair to let your academia go peeping in on other people's houses. Wait a minute. My academia doesn't just peep. I held up a hand. Save it. I don't want to hear it. He grunted. You are trivializing what getting out for a bit means to me, Harry. You're insulting my masculinity. Bob, I said, you're a skull. You don't have any masculinity to insult. Oh, yeah? Bob challenged me. Pot kettle black, Harry. Have you gotten a date yet? Hmm? Most men have something better to do in the middle of the night than play with their chemistry sets. As a matter of fact, I told him, I am set for Saturday night. Bob's eyes fluttered from orange to red. Ooh, he leered. Is she pretty? Dark skin, I said. Dark hair, dark eyes, legs to die for, smart, sexy as hell. Bob chortled. Think she'd like to see the lab? Get your mind out of the gutter. No, seriously, Bob said. If she's so great, what's she doing with you? You aren't exactly Seguayan, you know. It was my turn to get defensive. She likes me, I said. Is that such a shock? Harry, Bob drawled, his eyelights flickering smugly. What you know about women I could juggle. I stared at Bob for a moment and realized with a somewhat sinking feeling that the skull was probably right. Not that I would admit that to him, not in a million years, but he was. We're going to make an escape potion, I told him. I don't want to be all night, so can we get to work, huh? I can only remember about half the recipe. There's always room to make two if you're making one, Harry. You know that. That much was true. The process of mixing up an alchemy potion is largely stirring, simmering, and waiting. You can always get another one going and alternate between them. Sometimes you can even do three, but that's pushing it. Okay, so we'll make a copy. Oh, come on, Bob chided me. That's dull. You should stretch yourself. Try something new. Like what? I asked him. Bob's eye sockets twinkled cheerfully. A love potion, Harry. If you won't let me out, at least let me do that.
Spirits know you could use it. And no, I said firmly, no way, no love potion. Fine, he said, no love potion, no escape potion either. Bob, I said warningly. Bob's eye lights winked out. I growled. I was tired and cranky, and under the best of circumstances, I am not exactly a type A personality. I stalked over, picked up Bob by the jaws, and shook him. Hey, I shouted, Bob, you come out of there, or I'm going to take this skull and throw it down the deepest well I can find, and I swear to you I'll put it somewhere where no one can ever let you out again. Bob's eyes winked on for a moment. No, you won't. I'm far too valuable. Then they winked out again. I gritted my teeth and tried not to smash the skull to little pieces on the floor. I took deep breaths, summoning years of wizardry training and control, not to throw a tantrum and break the nice spirit into little pieces. Instead, I put the skull back on the shelf and counted slowly to thirty. Could I make the potion by myself? I probably could. But I had the sinking feeling that it might not have been precisely the effect I wanted. Potions were tricky business and a lot more relied upon precise details than upon intent, like in spells. And just because I made a love potion didn't mean I had to use it, right? It would only be good for a couple of days in any case, surely not through the weekend. How much trouble could it cause? I struggled to rationalize the action. It would appease Bob and give him some kind of vicarious thrill. Love potions were about the cheapest thing in the world to make, so it wouldn't cost me too much. And I thought, if Susan should ask me for some kind of demonstration of magic, as she always did, I could always... No, that would be too much. That would be like admitting I couldn't get a woman to like me on my own. And it would be unfair, taking advantage of the woman. What I wanted was the escape potion. I might need it at Bianca's place. And I could always use it, if worse came to worse, to make a getaway from Morgan and the White Council. I would feel a lot better if I had the escape potion. Okay, Bob, fine. You win. We'll do them both, all right? Bob's eyes came up warily. Are you sure? You'll do the love potion, just like I say? Don't I always make the potions like you say, Bob? What about the diet potion you tried? Okay, okay, that was a mistake. And the anti-gravity potion, remember that? We fixed the floor. That was no big deal. And the... Fine, fine, I growled. You don't have to rub it in. Now cough up the recipes. Bob did so. In fine humor. And for the next two hours, we made potions. Potions are all made pretty much the same way. First, you need a base to form the essential liquid content. Then, something to engage each of the senses and then something for the mind and something else for the spirit. Eight ingredients, all in all, and they're different for each and every potion and for each person who's making them. Bob had centuries of experience, and he could extrapolate the most successful components for a given person to make into a potion. He was right about being an invaluable resource. I had never even heard of a spirit with Bob's experience, and I was lucky to have him. That didn't mean I didn't want to crack that skull of his from time to time, though. The escape potion was made in a base of eight ounces of jolt cola. We added a drop of motor oil for the smell of it, cut a bird's feather into tiny shavings for the tactile value, three ounces of chocolate-covered espresso beans ground into powder went in next, then a shredded bus ticket I'd never used for the mind, and a small chain, which I broke and then dropped in for the heart. 
I unfolded a clean white cloth where I had a flickering shadow stored for just such an occasion and tossed it into the brew, then opened up a glass jar where I kept my mouse campers and tapped the sound into the beaker where the solution was brewing. You sure this is going to work, Bob? I said. Always. That's a super recipe there. Smells terrible. Bob's lights twinkled. They usually do. What's it doing? Is this the super speed one or the teleportation version? Bob coughed. <clears throat> a little of both, actually. Drink it and you'll be the wind for a few minutes. The wind? I eyed him. I haven't heard of that one before, Bob. I'm an air spirit, after all, Bob told me. This will work fine. Trust me. I grumbled and set the first potion to simmering, then started on the next one. I hesitated after Bob told me the first ingredient. Tequila, I asked him skeptically. Are you sure on that one? I thought the base for a love potion was supposed to be champagne. Champagne, tequila, what's the difference? So long as it'll lower her inhibitions, Bob said. Uh, I'm thinking it's going to get us a sleazier result. Hey, Bob protested. Who's the memory spirit here, me or you? Well, who's got all the experience with women here, me or you? Bob, Harry... Bob lectured me. I was seducing shepherdesses when you weren't a twinkle in your great grandsister's eyes. I think I know what I'm doing. I sighed, too tired to argue. Okay, okay, sheesh, tequila. I got down the bottle, measured eight ounces into the beaker, and glanced up at the skull. Right. Now, three ounces of dark chocolate. Chocolate? I demanded. Chicks are into chocolate, Harry. I muttered more interested in finishing than anything else, and measured out the ingredients. I did the same with a drop of perfume, some name-brand imitation that I liked, an ounce of shredded lace, and the last sigh at the bottom of the glass jar. I added some candlelight to the mix, and it took on a rosy golden glow. Great, said Bob. That's just right. Okay, now we'll add the ashes of a passionate love letter. I blinked at the skull. Uh, Bob, I'm fresh out of those. Bob snorted. Oh, how did I guess? Look on the shelf behind me. I did, and found a pair of romance novels, their covers filled with impossibly delightful flesh. Hey, where did you get these? My last trip out, Bob answered blithefully. Page 174, the paragraph that starts with her milky white breasts. Tear that page out and burn it and add those ashes in. I choked. Will that work? Hey, women eat these things up, trust me. Fine, I sighed. Is there a spirit ingredient? Mm-hmm, Bob said. He was rocking back and forth on his jawbones in excitement. Now just a teaspoon of powdered diamond, and we're done. I rubbed my eyes. Diamond? I don't have any diamonds, Bob. I figured. You're cheap. That's why women don't like you. Look, just tear up a fifty into real little pieces and put that in there. A fifty-dollar bill? I demanded. Money, Bob opined. Very sexy. I muttered and got my remaining fifty out of my pocket, shredding it and tossing it in to complete the potion. The next step is where the effort came in. Once all the ingredients are mixed, you have to force enough energy through them to activate them. It isn't the actual physical ingredients that are important. It's the meaning that they carry, too. The significance that they have for the person making the potion and for those who will be using it. The energy from magic comes from a lot of places. It can come from a special place, usually some spectacular natural site like Mount St. Helens or Old Faithful. 
a focus of some kind, like Stonehenge, is on a large scale, or from inside of people. The best magic comes from inside. Sometimes it's just pure mental effort, raw willpower. Sometimes it's emotions and feelings. All of them are viable tender to be used for the proverbial fire. I had a lot of worry to use to fuel the magic, a lot of annoyance, and one hell of a lot of stubbornness. I murmured the requisite quasi-Latin litany over the potions over and over, feeling a kind of resistance building, just out of range of my physical senses, but there, nonetheless. I gathered up all my worry and anger and stubbornness and threw them all at the resistance in one big ball, shaping them with the strength and tone of my words. The magic left me in a sudden wave, like a pitcher abruptly emptied out. I love this pot, Bob said, just as the potions exploded into puffs of greenish smoke and began to froth up over the lips of the beakers. I sagged onto the stool and waited for the potions to fizz down, all the strength gone out of me, the weariness building up like a load of bricks on my shoulders. Once the frothing had settled, I leaned over and poured each potion into its individual sports bottle with a squeeze top, then labeled the containers with a permanent magic marker, very clearly. I don't take chances in getting potions mixed up anymore, ever since the invisibility hair tonic incident when I was trying to grow out a decent beard. You won't regret this, Harry, Bob assured me. That's the best potion I've ever made. I made it, not you, I growled. I was really exhausted now. Way too tired to let petty concerns like possible executions keep me from bed. Sure, sure, Bob agreed. Whatever, Harry. I went around the room, putting out all the fires and the kerosene heater, and then climbed the ladder back to the basement without saying goodnight. Bob was chortling happily to himself as I did. I stumbled to my bed and fell into it. Mister always climbs in and goes to sleep draped over my legs. I waited for him, and a few seconds later he showed up, settling down and purring like a miniature outboard motor. I struggled to put together an itinerary for the next couple of days, through the haze of exhaustion. Talk to the vampire, locate missing husband, avoid the wrath of the White Council, find the killer before he found me. An unpleasant thought. But I decided I wasn't going to let that bother me either, and curled up to go to sleep. Friday night, I went to see Bianca, the vampress. I didn't just leap out of bed and go see her, of course. You don't go walking into the proverbial lion's den lightly. You start with a good breakfast. My breakfast took place around three in the afternoon when I woke up to hear my phone ringing. I had to get out of bed and pad into the main room to answer it. <laughs> I grumbled. Dresden, Murphy said. What can you tell me? Murphy sounded stressed. Her voice had that distinct edge that she got whenever she was nervous, and it rankled me like fingernails scraping on bones. The investigation into Tommy Tom's murder must not be going well. Nothing yet, I said. Then I lied to her a little. I was up most of the night working, but nothing showed yet. She answered me with a swear word. That's not good enough, Harry. I need answers, and I need them yesterday. I'll get to it as quick as I can. Get to it faster, she snarled. She was angry. Not that this was unusual for Murphy, but it told me that something else was going on. Some people panic when things get rough, harried. Some people fall apart. Murphy got pissed. Commissioner's riding your back again? City Police Commissioner Howard Fairweather used Murphy and her team as scapegoats for all sorts of unsolvable crimes that he had dumped into her lap.
Fairweather was always lurking around, trying for an opportunity to make Murphy look bad, as though by doing so he would avoid being crucified himself. Like a winged monkey from the Wizard of Oz. Kind of makes you wonder who's leaning on him to get things done. Her voice was sour as ripe lemons. I heard her drop an Alka-Seltzer into a glass of liquid. I'm serious, Harry. You get me those answers I need, and you get them fast. I need to know if this was sorcery, and if so, how it was done, and who could have done it. Names, places, I need to know everything. It isn't that simple, Mur it, Then make it simple. How long before you can tell me? I need an estimate for the Commissioner's Investigative Committee in 15 minutes, or I might as well turn in my badge today. I grimaced. If I was able to get something out of Bianca, I might be able to help Murph on the investigation. But if it proved fruitless, I was going to have to spend the entire evening doing nothing productive. And Murphy needed her answers now. Maybe I should have made a stay-awake potion. Does the committee work weekends? Murphy snorted. Are you kidding? We'll have something by Monday, then. You can have it figured out by then? She asked. I don't know how much good it'll do you, even if I can puzzle it out. I hope you've got more to go on than this. I heard her sigh into the phone and drink the fizzy drink. Don't let me down, Harry. Time to change the subject before she pinned me down and smelled me lying. I had no intention of doing the forbidden research if I could find a way out of doing it. No luck with Bianca? Another swear word. That bitch won't talk to us. Just smiles and nods and blows smoke, makes small talk and crosses her legs. You should have seen Carmichael drooling. Well, tough to blame him, maybe. I hear she's cute. Listen, Murph, what if I just... No, Harry, absolutely not. You will not go over to the Velvet Room. You will not talk to that woman. You will not get involved in this. Lieutenant Murphy, I drawled, a little jealous, are we? Don't flatter yourself. You're a civilian, Dresden. Even if you do have your investigator's license, if you get your ass laid out in the hospital or the morgue, it'll be me that suffers for it. Murph, I'm touched. I'll touch your head to a brick wall a few times if you cross me on this, Harry. Her voice was sharp, vehement. Hey, wind down, Murph. If you don't want me to go, no problem. Whoops, a lie. She'd be all over that like a troll on a billy goat. You're a lousy liar, Harry. God damn it, I ought to take you down to lock up just to keep you from... What? I said loudly into the receiver. Murph, you're breaking up. I can't hear you. Damn phone again. Call me back. Then I hung up on her. Mr. patted over to me and batted at my leg. He watched me with serious green eyes as I leaned down and unplugged the phone as it started to ring again. Okay, mister. You hungry? I got us breakfast. Leftover steak sandwich for him. SpaghettiOs heated up on my wood stove for me. I rationed out my last can of Coke, which Mr. Craves at least as badly as I do, and by the time I was done eating and drinking and petting, I was awake and thinking again, and getting ready for sundown. Daylight savings time hadn't cut it yet. The dark would fall around six. I had about two hours to get set to go. You might think you know a thing or two about vampires. Maybe some of the stuff you've heard is accurate. Likely it's not. Either way, I wasn't looking forward to the prospect of going into Bianca's lair to demand information from her. I was going to assume that things were going to get ugly before all was said and done, just to make sure I didn't get caught with my staff down. Wizardry is all about thinking ahead, about being prepared. Wizards aren't really superhuman. We just have a leg up on seeing things more clearly than other people. 
and being able to use the extra information we have for our benefit. Hell, the word wizard comes from the same root as wise. We know things. We aren't any stronger or faster than anyone else. We don't even have all that much more going on in the mental department. But we're god-awful sneaky. And if we get the chance to get set for something, we can do some impressive things. As a wizard, if you're ready to address a problem, then it's likely that you'll be able to come up with something that will let you deal with it. So I got together all the things I thought I might need. I made sure my cane was polished and ready. I put my silver knife in a sheath that hung just under my left arm. I put the escape potion in its plastic squeeze bottle into my duster's pocket. I put on my favorite talisman, a silver pentacle on a silver chain. It had been my mother's. My father had passed it down to me. And I put a small, folded piece of white cloth into my pocket. I had several enchanted items around, or half-enchanted items, anyway. Carrying out a full enchantment is expensive and time-consuming, and I just couldn't afford to do it very much. We blue-collar wizards just have to sling out a few spells where we can and hope they don't go stale at the wrong time. I would have been a lot more comfortable if I'd been carrying my blasting rod or my staff, but that would look like showing up at Bianca's door in a tank, walking in carrying a machine gun and a flamethrower while announcing my intention to fight. I had to maintain a fine balance between going in ready for trouble and going in asking for trouble. Not that I was afraid, mind you. I didn't think Bianca would be willing to cause problems for a mortal wizard. Bianca wouldn't want to piss off the White Council by messing with me. On the other hand, I wasn't exactly the White Council's favorite guy. They might even look the other way if Bianca decided to take me quietly out of the picture. Careful, Harry, I warn myself. Don't get paranoid. If you get like that, you'll be building your little apartment into the basement of solitude. What do you think? I asked Mr. once I was decked out in what paraphernalia I was willing to carry. Mr. went to the door and batted at it insistently. Everyone's a critic. Fine, fine, I sighed. I let him out, then I went out, got into my car, and drove down to the velvet room in its expensive lakeside location. Bianca runs her business out of an old huge mansion from the early days of the Roaring Twenties. Rumor has it that the infamous Al Capone had built it for one of his mistresses. There was a gate with an iron fence and a security guard. I pulled the beetle up to the little swath of driveway that began at the street and ended at the fence. There was a hiccuping rattle from the back of the engine as I brought the machine to a halt. I rolled down the window and stuck my head out, peering back. Something went whoom, and then black smoke poured out from the bottom of the car and scuttled down the slope of the drive and into the street. I winced. The engine gave an almost apologetic rattle and shuddered to its death. Great. Now I had no ride home. I got out of the beetle and stood mourning it for a moment. The security guard on the other side of the gate was a blocky man, not overly tall, but overly muscled, and hiding it under an expensive suit. He studied me with attack dog eyes and then said through the gate, Do you have an appointment? No, I told him, but I think Bianca will want to see me. He looked at me unimpressed. I'm sorry, he said. Bianca's out for the evening. Things are never simple anymore. I shrugged at him, folded my arms, and leaned on the hood of the beetle. Suit yourself. I'll just stay until a tow truck comes by then, until I can get this thing out of the drive for you. He stared at me. His eyes narrowed down to tiny slits with the effort of thinking. 
Eventually, the thoughts got to his brain, got processed, and sent back out with a message to pass the buck. I'll call your name in, he said. Good man, I approved. You won't be sorry. Name, he growled. Harry Dresden. If he recognized my name and didn't show on his face, he glared at me and the beetle and walked off a few paces, lifting a cellular phone from his pocket and to his ear. I listened. Listening isn't hard to do. No one has practice at it nowadays, but you can train yourself to pay attention to your senses, if you work at it long enough. I got a guy down here that says that Bianca will want to talk to him, the guard said. Says his name is Harry Dresden. He was silent for a moment. I couldn't quite make out the buzz of the other voice, other than it was a female. Mm-hmm, he said. He glanced back at me. Mm-hmm, he said again. Sure, sure I will. Oh, of course, ma'am. I reached in through the window of the beetle and got out my cane. I rested it on the concrete beside my boots and tapped it a few times, as though impatient. The guard turned back to me, leaned over to one side, and pushed a button somewhere. The gate buzzed and clicked open. Come on in, Mr. Dresden, he said. I can have someone come and tow your car if you like. Super, I told him. I gave him the name of the wrecker Mike has to deal with and told him to tell the guy that it was Harry's car again. Fido, the guard, dutifully noted this down, writing on a small notebook he drew from a pocket. While he did, I walked past him toward the house, clicking my cane on the concrete with every pace. Stop, he told me, his voice calm and confident. People don't speak with that kind of absolute authority unless they have a gun in their hands. I stopped. Put the cane down, he told me, and put your arms up. You ought to be searched before you were allowed inside. I sighed. I did what he said and let him pat me down. I didn't turn around to face him, but I could smell the metal of his gun. He found the knife and took it. His fingers brushed the nape of my neck, felt the chain there. What's this? he said. Pentacle, I told him. Let me see it. Use one hand. I used my left hand to draw it out of my shirt and show it to him. A silver five-pointed star within a circle, all smooth geometry. He grunted and said, fine. The search went on, and he found the plastic squeeze bottle. He took it out of my pocket, opened it, and sniffed at it. What's this? A health cola, I said. Smells like shit, he said capped it and put it back in my pocket. What about my cane? Return when you leave, he said. Damn, my knife and my cane had been my only physical lines of defense. Anything else I did would have to rely wholly upon magic, and that would be dicey on the best of days. It was enough to rattle me. Of course, Fido the guard had missed a couple of things. First, he'd overlooked the clean white handkerchief in my pocket, Second, he'd passed me on with my pentacle still upon my neck. He probably figured that, since it wasn't a crucifix or even a cross, that I couldn't use it to keep Bianca away from me. Which wasn't true. Vampires, and other such creatures, don't respond to symbols as such. They respond to the power that accompanies an act of faith. I couldn't ward off a vampire mosquito with my faith in the Almighty. He and I just never seemed to connect. But the pentacle was a symbol of magic itself, and I had plenty of faith in that. And, of course, Fido had overlooked my getaway potion. Bianca really ought to trust her guards with more awareness of the supernatural and what sort of things to look for. The house itself was elegant, very roomy, with the high ceilings and the broad floors 
that they just don't make anymore. A well-groomed young woman with a short, straight haircut greeted me in an enormous entry hall. I was passing polite to her, and she showed me to the library, its walls lined with old books in leather bindings, similar to the leather-cushioned chairs around the enormous old dogfoot table in the room center. I took a seat and waited, and waited, and waited. More than a half an hour went by before Bianca finally arrived. She came into the room like a candle burning with a cold, clear flame. Her hair was a burnished shade of auburn that was too dark to cast any ruddy highlights, but it did anyway. Her eyes were dark, clear, her complexion flawlessly smooth and elegantly graced with cosmetics. She was not a tall woman, but was shapely, wearing a black dress with a plunging neckline and a slash to one side that showed off a generous portion of pale thigh. Black gloves covered her hands to above the elbows, and her $300 shoes were a study in high-heeled torture devices. She looked too good to be true. Mr. Dresden, she greeted me, this is an unexpected pleasure. I rose when she entered the room. Madame Bianca, I replied, nodding to her. We meet at last. Hearsay neglected to mention how lovely you are. She laughed. Lips shaped the sounds, head falling back just enough to show a flash of pale throat. A gentleman, they said. I see they were correct. It is a charmingly passé thing to be a gentleman in this country. You and I are of another world, I said. She approached me and extended her hand, a motion oozing feminine grace. I bowed over her hand briefly, taking it and brushing my lips against the back of her glove. Do you really think I'm beautiful, Mr. Dresden? she asked me. As lovely as a star, madam. Polite and a pretty one, too, she murmured. Her eyes flickered over me from head to toe, but even she avoided meeting gazes with me. Whether from a desire to avoid inadvertently directing her power at me or being on the receiving end of mine, I couldn't tell. She continued into the room and stopped beside one of the comfortable chairs. As a matter of course, I stepped around the table and drew out the chair for her, seating her. She crossed her legs in that dress, in those shoes, and made it look good. I blinked for just a moment, then returned to my seat. So, Mr. Dresden, what brings you to my humble house? Care for an evening of entertainment? I quite assure you that you will never have another experience like it. She placed her hands in her lap, smiling at me. I smiled at her and put one hand into my pocket onto the white handkerchief. No, thank you. I came to talk. Her lips parted a silent. Ah, I see. About what, if I might ask? About Jennifer Stanton and her murder. I had all of a second's warning. Bianca's eyes narrowed, then widened like those of a cat about to spring. Then she was coming at me over the table faster than a breath, her arms extended toward my throat. I toppled over backwards in my chair. Even though I'd started to move first, it wasn't enough to get away from her reaching nails in time. One grazed my throat with a hot sensation of pain, and she kept coming, following me down to the floor, those rich lips drawn back from sharp fangs. I jerked my hand out of my pocket and flapped open my white hanky at her, releasing the image of sunlight I'd been storing for use in potions. It lit up the room for a moment, brilliant. The light smashed into Bianca, 
hurled her back across the old table into one of the shelves and tore pieces of flesh from her like bits of rotten meat being peeled off a carcass by a sandblaster. She screamed, and the flesh around her mouth sloughed and peeled away like a snake's scales. I had never seen a real vampire before. I would have time to be terrified later. I took in the details that tugged my talisman off over my neck. It had a bat-like face, horrid and ugly, the head too big for its body, gaping, hungry jaws. Its shoulders were hunched and powerful. Membrous wings stretched out between the joints of its almost skeletal arms. Flabby black breasts hung before it, spilling out of the black dress that no longer looked feminine. Its eyes were wide and black and staring, and a kind of leathery, slimy hide covered its flesh, like an inner tube lathered with Vaseline, though there were tiny holes corroded in it by the sunlight I had brought with me. It recovered quickly, crouching and spreading long arms that ended in clawed-tipped fingers to either side with a hiss of rage. I drew my pentacle into my fist, raised it like every vampire slayer you ever saw does, and said, Jesus Christ, lady, just came here to talk. The vampire hissed and startled towards me with a gangling, weirdly graceful step. Its clawed feet were still wearing the $300 black pumps. Back, I said, taking a step towards it myself. The pentacle began to burn with the cold, clear light of applied will and belief. My faith, if you will, that it could turn such a monster aside. It hissed and turned its face aside, lifting its membrous arms to shield its eyes from the light. It took one step back and then another until its hunched back was pressed against a wall of books. Now what do I do? I wasn't going to try to put a stake through her heart, but if I lowered my will, she might come at me again. And I didn't think I had anything, even the quickest evocations that I could get out of my mouth before she tore it off my head. And even if I got past her, she probably had mortal lackeys, like the security guard at the gate, who would be happy to kill me if they saw me trashing their mistress. You killed her, the vampress snarled, and its voice was exactly the same, sultry and feminine. Even though twisted by rage and coming from that horrid mouth, it was unsettling. You killed Jennifer. She was mine, Mageling. Look, I told her, I didn't come here for any of this, and the police know I'm here. Save yourself a lot of trouble. Sit down, talk with me, and we'll both go away happy. Christ, Bianca, do you think that if I'd killed Jennifer and Tommy Tom, that I'd just be waltzing in here like this? You expect me to believe that you didn't? You will never leave this house alive. I was feeling angry myself, and frightened. Christ, even the vampire thought I was a bad guy. What'll it take to convince you that I didn't do it? Black, bottomless eyes stared at me through the burning fire of my faith. I could feel some sort of power there, trying to get at me, and held off by the force of my will, just as the creature itself was. The vampire snarled. Lower the amulet, wizard. If I do, are you going to come at my throat again? If you do not, I most certainly will. Shaky logic, that. I tried to work through this situation from her point of view. She had been scared when I showed up. She had me searched and divested of weapons as best she could. If she thought I was Jennifer Stanton's murderer, would the mere mention of that name have brought that sudden violence out of her? I began to get that sinking feeling you get when you realize that not everything is as it appears. If I put this down, I told her, I want your word that you'll sit down and talk with me. I swear to you, 
by fire and wind, that I had nothing to do with her death. The vampire hissed at me, shielding its eyes from the light with one taloned hand. Why should I believe you? Why should I believe you? I countered. Yellowed fangs showed in his mouth. If you do not trust my word, wizard, then how can I trust yours? Then you give it? The vampire stiffened, and though its voice was still harsh with rage and pain, still sexy as a silk shirt without any buttons, I thought I heard a ring of truth in its words. You have my promise. Lower the talisman. We will talk. Time for another calculated risk. I tossed the pinnacle onto the table. The cold light drained away, leaving the room lit by mere electricity again. The vampire slowly lowered its arms, blinking its two big eyes at me, and then at the pentacle upon the table. A long pink tongue flickered out nervously over its jaws and lowered face, then slipped back into its mouth. It was surprised, I realized. Surprised that I'd done it. My heart was racing, but I forced my fear back down out of my forebrain and into the background. Vampires are like demons, like wolves, like sharks. You don't let them think that you are potential food and get their respect at the same time. The vampire's true appearance was grotesque, but it wasn't as bad as some of the things I'd seen in my day. Some demons were a lot worse, and some of the elder things could rip your mind apart just by letting you look at them. I regarded the creature with a level gaze. How about it, I said. Let's talk. The longer we sit around staring at one another, the longer Jennifer's killer stays free. The vampire stared at me for a moment more. Then it shuddered, drawing its wings and membranes about itself. Black slime turned into patches of pale, perfect flesh that spread over the vampire's dark skin like a growth of fungus. The flabby black breasts swelled into softly rounded, rosy-tipped perfection once more. Bianca stood before me a moment later, settling her dress back into modesty again. Her arms crossed over her as though she was cold, her back stiff and her eyes angry. She was no less beautiful than she had been a few moments before, not a line or curve any different. But for me, the glamour had been ruined. She still had the same eyes, dark and fathomless and alien. I would always remember what she truly looked like beneath her flesh mask. I stooped and picked up my chair, riding it. Then I went around the table, turned my back on her, and stood hers up as well. And I held it out for her, just as I had when I entered the room. She stared at me for a long moment. Some expression flickered across her face. She was disconcerted by my apparent lack of concern about the way she looked, and it told. And then she lifted her chin proud and settled gracefully into the chair again, regal as any queen, every line stiff with anger. The old rules of courtesy and hospitality were holding, but for how long? I returned to my seat and leaned over to pick up my white handkerchief, toying with it. Bianca's angry eyes flickered down to it, and once again she repeated the nervous gesture of licking her teeth and lips, though this time her tongue looked human. So, Tell me about Jennifer and Tommy Tom, I said. She shook her head, almost sneering. I can tell you what I told the police. I don't know who could have killed them. Come on, Bianca. We don't have to hide things from one another. We're not part of the mortal world. Her eyebrows slanted down, revealing more anger. No, 
You're the only one in the city with the kind of skill required to cast that sort of spell. If you didn't, I have no idea who else could have. You don't have any enemies? Anyone who might have been wanting to make an impression on you? A bitter little line appeared at the corner of her lips, something that was not quite a smile. Of course, but none of them could have managed what happened to Tommy and Jenny. She drummed her fingernails over the tabletop, leaving little score marks in the wood. I don't let any enemies that dangerous run around alive, at least not for long. I settled back in my chair, frowning, and did my damnedest not to let her see how scared I was. How did you know Tommy, Tom? She shrugged, her shoulders gleaming like porcelain, and just as brittle. You may have thought he was just a bruiser for Johnny Marcone, Mr. Dresden, but Tommy was a very gentle and considerate man, underneath. He was always good to his women. He treated them like real people. Her gaze shifted from side to side, not lifting. Like human beings. I wouldn't take on a client if I thought he wouldn't be a gentleman, but Tommy was better than most. I met him years ago, elsewhere. I always made sure he had someone to take care of him when he wanted an evening of company. You sent Jennifer out to him that night? She nodded, her expression bleak. Her nails drummed the tabletop again, gouging out more wood. Was there anyone else who saw him on a regular basis? Maybe someone who would have talked to him, known what was going on in his life? Bianca shook her head. No, she said, but then she frowned. I just watched her and absently tossed the handkerchief on the tabletop. Her eyes flicked to it and then up to mine. I didn't flinch. I met her bottomless gaze and quirked my mouth up in a little smile as though I had something more and worse to pull out of my hat if she wanted to come after me again. I saw her anger, her rage, and for just a moment I got a peek inside, saw the source of it. She was furious that I had seen her true form, horrified and embarrassed that I had stripped her disguise away and seen the creature underneath. And she was afraid that I could take away even her mask forever with my power. More than anything else, Bianca wanted to be beautiful. And tonight I had destroyed her illusion. I had rattled her gilded little world. She sure as hell wasn't going to let me forget that. She shuddered and jerked her eyes away, furious and frightened at the same time, before I could see any deeper into her, or she into me. If I had not given you my word, Dresden, she whispered, I would kill you this instant. That would be unfortunate, I said. I kept my voice hard. You know the risks in a wizard's death curse. You've got something to lose, Bianca. And even if you could take me out, you can bet your pretty ass I'd be dragging you into hell with me. She stiffened, then turned her head to one side and let her fingers go limp. It was a silent, bitter surrender. She didn't move quickly enough for me to miss seeing a tear streak down one cheek. I'd made a vampire cry. Great. I felt like a real superhero now. Harry Dresden, breaker of monsters' hearts. There may be one person who might know something, she said, her lovely voice dull, flat, lifeless. I had a woman who worked for me, Linda Randall. She and Jennifer went out on calls together. When customers wanted that sort of thing, they were close. Where is she now? I asked. She's working as a driver for someone. Some rich couple who wanted a servant that would do more than windows. She wasn't the type I usually kept around in any case. I think Jennifer had her phone number. I can have someone fetch it for you, Mr. Dresden. 
She said my name as though it were something bitter and poisonous that she wanted to spit out. Thank you. That would be very kind. I kept my tone carefully formal, neutral. Formality and a good bluff were all that was keeping her from my throat. She remained quiet, controlling her evident emotions, before she started to look up again at last. Her eyes froze, then widened when they came to my throat. Her expression went perfectly inhumanly still. I grew tense. Not just tense. Steel-tight, wire-bound, spring-coiled. I was out of tricks and weapons. If she came after me now, I wasn't going to get the chance to defend myself. There was no way I would be able to drink the potion before she tore me apart. I gripped the arms of my chair hard to keep myself from bolting. Do not show fear. Do not run away. It would only make her chase me, snap her instincts into the reaction of pursuing the prey. You're bleeding, Mr. Dresden, she whispered. I lifted my hand slowly to my throat, where her nails had scored on me earlier. My fingertips came away slick with my own blood. Bianca kept on staring. Her tongue flickered around her mouth again. Cover it. Cover it, she whispered. A strange mewling sound came out of her mouth. Cover it, Dresden. I picked up my handkerchief and pressed it over my throat. Bianca blinked, her eyes closed slowly and then turned away, half hunched over her stomach. She didn't stand up. Go, she told me. Go now. Paula's coming. I'll send her down to the gate with the phone number in a little while. I walked towards the door, but then stopped, glancing back at her. There was a sort of horrid fascination to it, to knowing what was beneath the alluring exterior, the flesh mask, but seeing it twist and writhe with need. Go, Bianca whimpered. Fury, hunger, and some emotion I couldn't even begin to fathom made her voice stretch out thinner. Go, and do not think I will not remember this night. Do not think I will not make you regret it. The door to the library opened, and the straight-haired young woman who had greeted me earlier entered the room. She gave me a passing glance, then walked past me, kneeling at Bianca's side. Paula, I presumed. Paula murmured something too soft to hear, gently brushing Bianca's hair back from her face with one hand. Then she unbuttoned the sleeve of her blouse, rolling it up past her elbow, and pressed her wrist to Bianca's mouth. I had a good view of what happened. Bianca's tongue flashed out, long and pink and sticky, smearing Paula's wrist with shining saliva. Paula shuddered at the touch, her breath coming quicker. Her nipples stiffened beneath the thin fabric of the blouse, and she let her head fall slowly backwards. Her eyes were glazed over with a narcotic languor, like a junkie who had just shot up. Bianca's fangs extended and slashed open Paula's pale, pretty skin. Blood welled. Bianca's tongue began to flash in and out, faster than could really be seen, lapping the blood up as quickly as it appeared. Her dark eyes were narrow, distant. Paula was gasping and moaning in pleasure, her entire body shivering. I felt a little sick and withdrew step by step, not turning my back on the scene. Paula toppled slowly to the floor, writhing her way toward unconsciousness with evident glee. Bianca followed her down, unladylike now, a creature of bestial hunger. She crouched over the supine woman, and in the hunch of her pale shoulders I could see the bat-like thing beneath the flesh mask lapping up Paula's blood. I got out of there, fast, shutting the door behind me. My heart was hammering, too quickly. 
The scene with Paula might have aroused me if I hadn't seen what was underneath Bianca's mask. Instead, it only made me sick to my stomach, afraid. That woman had given herself to that thing as quickly and as willingly as any woman to her lover. The saliva. Some part of me rationalized, desperate to latch onto something cold and logical and detached. The saliva was probably narcotic, probably even addictive. It would explain Paula's behavior, the need to have more of her drug. But I wondered if Paula would have been so eager had she known Bianca's true face. Now I understood why the White Council was so hard-nosed with vampires. If they could get that kind of control over a mortal, what would happen if they could get their hooks into a wizard? If they could addict a wizard to them as thoroughly as Bianca had the girl I'd just seen, surely it wasn't possible. But then, if it wasn't, why would the Council be so nervous about them? Do not think I will not make you regret it, she said. I felt cold as I hurried down the dark driveway toward the gate. Fido, the security guard, was waiting for me at the front gate and passed back my knife and my cane without a word. A tow truck was out in front, latching itself to the beetle. I put one hand on the cold metal of the gate and kept the other, with its handkerchief, pressed to my throat and watched George, the tow truck guy, work. He recognized me and waved, flashing a grin that showed the white teeth in his dark face. I nodded back. I wasn't up to answering the smile. A few minutes later, the guard's cellular phone beeped at him. He withdrew several paces, repeated several affirmatives, then took a notebook from his pocket, writing something down. He put the phone away and walked back over to me, offering me the piece of paper. What's this? I said. The phone number you were looking for, and a message. I glanced at the paper, but avoided reading it just then. I thought Bianca was going to send Paula down with it. He didn't say anything, but his jaw tightened, and I saw his eyes flick toward the house, where his mistress was. He swallowed. Paula wasn't coming out of the house, and Fido was afraid. I took the paper. I kept my hand from shaking as I looked at it. On it was a phone number and a single word. Regret. I folded the piece of paper in half and put it away into the pocket of my duster. Another enemy. Super. At least with my hands in my pockets, Fido couldn't see them shaking. Maybe I should have listened to Murphy. Maybe I should have stayed home and played with some nice, safe, forbidden black magic instead. I departed Bianca's place in George's loner, a wood-paneled Studebaker that grumbled and growled and squealed everywhere it went. I stopped at a payphone, short distance from the house, and called Linda Randall's number. The phone rang several times before a quiet, dusty contralto answered. Beckett's, this is Linda. Linda Randall, I asked. Mm-hmm, she answered. She had a furry, velvety voice, something tactile. Who's this? My name is Harry Dresden, and I was wondering if I could talk to you. Harry who? She asked. Dresden. I'm a private investigator. She laughed, a sound rich enough to roll around naked in. Investigating my privates, Mr. Dresden? I like you already. I coughed. Uh, yes, Miss Randall. Miss, she said, cutting in. Miss Randall, I'm not occupied. At the moment... Miss Randall, I amended. I'd like to ask you some questions about Jennifer Stanton, if I could. Silence on the other end of the line. I could hear some sounds in the background, a radio playing, perhaps, and a recorded voice talking about white zones and red zones and loading and unloading of vehicles. 
Miss Randall. No, she said. It won't take long, and I assure you that you aren't the subject of anything I'm doing. If you could just give me a few moments of your time. No, she told me. I'm on duty and will be for the rest of the night. I don't have time for this. Jennifer Stanton was a friend of yours. She's been murdered. If there's anything you can tell me that might help, she cut me off again. There isn't, she said. Goodbye, Mr. Dresden. The line went dead. I scowled at the phone, frustrated. That was it, then. I'd gone through all the preparation, the face-off with Bianca and possible future troubling for nothing. No way, I thought, no way in hell. Bianca had said that Linda Randall was working as a driver for someone. The Becketts, I presume, whoever they were. I recognized the voice in the background as a recorded message that played outside the concourses at O'Hare Airport. So she was in a car at the airport, maybe waiting to pick up the Becketts, and definitely not here for long. With no time to lose, I kicked the wheezing old Studebaker into gear and drove to O'Hare. It was far easier to blow off someone over the phone than it was to do it in person. There were several concourses, but I had to trust to luck. Luck to guide me to the right one. And luck to get me there in time before Miss I Am Not Occupied Randall had the opportunity to pick up her employers and leave. And a little more luck to keep the Studebaker running all the way to O'Hare. The Studebaker did make it all the way there, and on the second concourse I came across a silvery baby limo idling in a parking zone. The interior was darkened so I couldn't see inside very well. It was a Friday evening, and the place was busy, business folk in their sober suits returning home from long trips about the country, cars continually purring in and out of the semicircular drive. A uniformed cop was directing traffic, keeping people from doing brainless things like parking in the middle of one of the traffic lanes in order to load up the car. I swerved the old Studebaker into a parking place, racing a Volvo for it and winning by a dent of driving the older and heavier vehicle and having the more suicidal attitude. I kept an eye on the silver limo as I got out of the car and strode over to a bank of payphones. I plopped my quarter in and once more dialed the number provided by Bianca. The phone rang. In the silver limo, someone stirred. Beckett's, this is Linda, she purred. Hello, Linda, I said. This is Harry Dresden again. I could almost hear her smirk. There was a flicker of light from inside the car, the silhouette of a woman's face, and then the orange glow of a cigarette being lit. I thought I told you I didn't want to talk to you, Mr. Dresden. I like women who play hard to get. She laughed that delicious laugh. I could see her head move in the darkened car when she did. I'm getting harder to get by the second. Goodbye again. She hung up on me. I smiled, hung up the phone, walked over to the limo, and rapped on the window. It buzzed down. A woman in her mid-twenties arched an eyebrow at me. She had beautiful eyes, the color of rain clouds, and a little too much eyeshadow, and brilliant scarlet lipstick on her cupid's bow lips. Her hair was medium brown, drawn back into a tight braid that made her cheeks look almost sharp, severe, except for her forelocks, which hung down close to her eyes in an insolent disarray. She had a predatory look about her, harsh, sharp. She wore a crisp white shirt, gray slacks, and held a lit cigarette in one hand. The smoke curled up around my nose, and I exhaled, trying to push it away. She looked me up and down, frankly assessing. Don't tell me, Harry Dresden. I really need to talk to you, Miss Randall. It won't take long. She glanced at her watch, and then had the terminal doors. Then back up at me. Well, you've got me cornered, don't you? I'm at your mercy. 
Her lips quirked. She took a drag of her cigarette. And I like a man who just won't stop. I cleared my throat again. The woman was attractive, but not unduly so. Yet there was just something about her that revved my engines. Something about the way she held her head or shaped her words that bypassed my brain and went straight to my hormones. Best to head directly to the point and minimize my chances of looking moronic. How do you know Jennifer Stanton? She looked up at me through long lashes. Intimately. <clears throat> you uh, worked for Bianca with her? Linda blew more smoke. That prissy little bitch. Yes, I worked with Jen. We were even roommates for a while. Shared a bed. She wrapped her lips around the last word, drawing it out with a little tremor that dipped wicked secret laughter. Did you know Tommy Tom? I asked. Oh, sure, fantastic in bed. She lowered her eyes and shifted on the car's seat, lowering one of her hands out of sight and made me wonder where it had gone. He was a regular customer, maybe twice a month. Jen and I would go over to his place, have a little party. She leaned towards me. He could do things to a woman that would turn her into a real animal, Harry Dresden. You know what I mean? Growling and snarling in heat. She was driving me crazy. That voice of hers inspired the kinds of dreams you wish you could remember more clearly in the morning. Her expression promised to show me things that you don't talk about with other people if I would give her half a chance. Your job, Harry, think about your job. Sometimes I really hate my job. When was the last time you talked to her? She took another drag, and this time I saw a small shake to her fingers. One she quickly hid. Just not quickly enough. She was nervous. Nervous enough to be shaking. And now I could see what she was up to. She was wearing the alley cat mask. Appealing to my glands instead of my brain and trying to distract me with it, trying to keep me from finding something out. I'm not inhuman. I can be distracted by a pretty face or body, like any other youngish man. Linda Randall was damned good at playing the part, but I do not like to be made the fool. So, Miss Sex Goddess, what are you hiding? I cleared my throat and asked mildly, <clears throat> When was the last time you spoke to Jennifer Stanton, Miss Randall? She narrowed her eyes at me. She wasn't dumb, whatever else she was. She'd seen me reading her, seeing through her pretense. The flirting manner vanished. Are you a cop? She demanded. I shook my head. Scout's on her. I'm just trying to find out what happened to her. Damn it, she said softly. She flicked the butt of the cigarette out onto the concrete and blew out a mouthful of smoke. Look, I tell you anything and I see a cop coming around. I never saw you before. You got it? I nodded. I talked to Jen on Wednesday evening. She called me. It was Tommy's birthday. She wanted to get together again. Her mouth twisted. Sort of a reunion. I glanced about and then leaned down closer to her. Did you? Her eyes were roving about now, nervous, like a cat who has found herself shut into a small room. No, she said. I had to work. I wanted to, but... Did she say anything unusual? Anything that might have made you suspect she was in danger? She shook her head again. No, nothing. We hadn't talked much for a while. I didn't see her as much after I split from the velvet room. I frowned at her. Do you know what else she was doing? Anything that she might have been involved with that could have gotten her hurt? She shook her head. No, no, nothing like that. That wasn't her style. She was sweet. A lot of girls get like... 
They get pretty jaded, Mr. Dresden, but it never really touched her. She made people feel better about themselves somehow. She looked away. I could never do that. All I did was get them off. There's nothing you can tell me, nothing you can think of. She pressed her lips together and shook her head. She shook her head and she lied to me as she did it. I was sure of it. She was closing in, tightening up. And if there was nothing to tell me, she wouldn't be trying to hide it. She must know something, unless she was just shutting down because I'd stomped all over her feelings, as I had Bianca's. Either way, she wasn't telling me anything else. I tightened my fist, frustrated. If Linda Randall had no information for me, I was at a dead end. And I'd romped all over another woman's feelings. Two in one night, you are on a roll, Dresden. Even if one of them had been a non-human. Why? I asked her, the words slipping out before I thought about them. Why the slut act? She looked up at me again and smirked. I saw the subtle shifting in her, magnifying that sort of animal appeal she had once more, as she had been doing when I first approached her, but I didn't hide the self-loathing in her eyes. I looked away quickly before I could see any more of it. I got the feeling I didn't want to see Linda Randall's soul. Because that's what I do, Mr. Dresden. For some people it's drugs, booze. For me, orgasms, sex, passion. Just another addict. City's full of them. She glanced aside. Next best thing to love. And it keeps me at work. Excuse me. She swung open the door. I took a quick step back out of her way, and she moved back to the limo, long legs taking long steps, and opened the trunk. A tall couple, both wearing glasses and dressed in stylish gray business clothes, emerged from the terminal and approached the limo. They had the look of lifestyle professionals, the kind that have a career and no kids, and with enough money and time to spend on making themselves look good. A Nordic track couple. He was carrying an overnight bag over his shoulder and a small suitcase in one hand, and while she bore only a briefcase. They wore no jewelry, not even watches or wedding rings. Odd. The man slung the luggage items into the limo's trunk and looked from Linda to me. Linda avoided his eyes. He tried to speak quietly enough not to be heard, but I have good ears. Who's this? he asked. His voice had a strained note to it. Just a friend, Mr. Beckett, a guy I used to see, she answered him. More lies. More interesting. I looked across the limo to the woman, presumably Mrs. Beckett. She regarded me with a calm face, entirely void of emotion. It was a little spooky. She had the look I'd seen in films, on the faces of prisoners released from the German Stalags in the end of World War II. Empty, numb, dead, and just didn't know it yet. Linda opened the back door and let Mr. and Mrs. Beckett into the car. Mrs. Beckett briefly put a hand on Linda's waist in passing a gesture that was too intimate and possessive for the hired help. I saw Linda shiver, then closed the door. She walked back around the car to me. Get out of here, she said quietly. I don't want to get in any trouble with my boss. I reached for her hand, grabbed it, and held it between both of mine, as a lover might, I supposed. My business card was pressed between our palms. My card. If you think of anything else, give me a call, okay? She turned away from me without answering, but the card vanished into a pocket before she got back into the limo. Mrs. Beckett's dead eyes watched me through the side window as the limo went by. It was my turn to shiver. Like I said, spooky. I went on into the airport, the monitors displaying flight times flickering to fuzz as I walked by. I went to one of the cafes inside, sat down, and ordered myself a cup of coffee. 
I had to pay for it with change. Most of my money had gone into paying off last month's rent and into the love potion I'd let Bob talk me into making. Money. I needed to get to work on Monica Sell's case, finding her husband. I didn't want to get out of hot water with the White Council, only to lose my office and apartment because I couldn't pay the bills. I sipped my coffee and tried to organize my thoughts. I had two areas of concern. The most important was finding out who had killed Tommy Tom and Jennifer Stanton. Not only to catch the killer before any more corpses turned up, but because if I didn't, the White Council would probably use the opportunity to have me put to death. And, while tracking down killers and avoiding execution squads, I had to do some work for someone who would pay me. Tonight's excursion wasn't something I could charge Murphy for. She'd have my ass in a sling if she knew I was running around asking questions, poking my nose in where it shouldn't be. So, if I wanted money from Chicago PD, I would have to spend time doing the research Murphy wanted. Black magic research that could get me killed all by itself. Or I could work on Monica Sell's missing husband case. I thought I had that one pretty well pegged down, but it wouldn't hurt to get it fleshed out fully. I could spend time working on it, filling out the hours on the retainer, maybe even getting a few more added on. That appealed to me a lot more than trying to work out some black magic. So I could follow up on the lead Toot Toot had given me. There'd been pizza delivered out to the Lake Providence home that night. Time to talk to the delivery man, if possible. I left the cafe, went out to the payphones, and dialed directory assistance. There was only one place near to the Lake Providence address that delivered pizza. I got the number and dialed through. Pizza Express, someone with a mouthful said. What'll it be tonight? Uh, hey there, I said. I wonder if you can help me out. I'm looking for the driver who took an order out to an address on Wednesday night. I told him the address and asked if he could help me speak to the driver. <sighs> Another one, he snorted. Sure, hang on. Jack's just got in from a run. The voice on the other end of the line called out to someone, and a minute later the high baritone of a young man spoke tentatively into my ear. H hello Hello, I answered. Are you the driver who took the pizza, too? Look, he said, his voice exasperated and nervous. I, I said I was sorry already. It won't happen again. I blinked for a minute, off balance. Sorry for what? Jesus, he said. I heard him move across the room with a lot of music and loud talk in the background, and in the background noise cut off as though he'd stepped into another room and shut the door behind him. Look, he said in a half whine, I told you I'm not going to say anything to anyone. I was only looking. You can't blame me, right? No one answered the door, so what was I supposed to do? His voice cracked in the middle of the sentences. It's a hell of a party, but hey, that's your business, right? I struggled to keep up with the kid. Uh, what exactly did you see, Jack? I asked him. No one's face, he assured me, his voice growing more nervous. He gave a jittery little laugh and tried to joke. Better things to look at than faces, right? I mean, I don't give a damn what you do in your own house, or your friends, or whatever. Don't worry about me. N never gonna say a thing. Next time, I'll just leave the pizza and run a tab, right? Friends. Plural. Interesting. The kid was awfully nervous. He must have gotten a knifeful. But I had a gut instinct that he was hiding something else, keeping it back. What else? I asked him. I kept my voice calm and neutral. You saw something else. What was it? <laughs> None of my business, he said instantly. None of my business. Look, I gotta get off this line. We have to keep it open for orders. It's Friday night. We're busy as hell. What? I said, separating my words and keeping them clipped. Else. 
Shit. He breathed, his voice shaking. Look, I wasn't with that guy. Don't know anything about him. I didn't tell him you were having an orgy out there, honest. Jesus, mister, I don't want any trouble. Victor Sells seemed to have a real good idea of how to party. And of how to frighten teenagers. One more question, I'll let this go, I told him. Who was it you saw? Tell me about him. I don't know, I don't know him. Did, I didn't recognize him. Some guy with a camera, that's all. I went around to the back of the house to try the back door, got up on your deck and just saw inside. I didn't keep on looking, but there he was up there, all in black, with his camera taking pictures. He paused as someone pounded on the door he had earlier closed. Oh, God, I have to go, mister. I, I don't know you. I don't know nothing. And then there was a scrambling of feet as he hung up the phone. I hung up the phone myself and ambled back to George's loner. I worked out details I had just learned on the way back to my apartment. Someone else had called Pizza Express, apparently just before I had. Someone else had gone asking after the pizza boy. Who? Why, Victor Sells, of course. Tracing down people who might have information about him. His possible presence in the lake house. Victor Sells, who had been having some sort of get-together out there that night. Maybe he had been drunk, or one of his guests had, and ordered a pizza. And now Victor was trying to cover his tracks. Which implied that Victor knew someone was looking for him. Hell, as far as I knew, he'd been in the house when I'd gone out there last night. This made things a lot more interesting. A missing man, who doesn't want to be found, could get dangerous if someone came snooping after him. And a photographer. Someone lurking around outside of the windows and taking pictures. I rummaged in my duster's pocket and found the round plastic film canister. That explained where that had come from, at any rate. But why would someone be out there in the house taking pictures of Victor and his friends? Maybe because Monica had hired someone else. A P.I., without telling me. Maybe just a neighbor with a hots for taking dirty pictures. No way to tell, really. More mysteries. I pulled the Studebaker into my drive and killed the engine. I tallied the score for the evening. Enigma's lots, Harry, zero. My investigation for Monica Sells had netted me one husband throwing wild parties in his beach house after losing his job and working hard not to be found probably an advanced case of male menopause. Monica didn't seem to be the kind of woman who would take such a thing with good grace, more like the kind who would close her eyes and call me a liar if I told her the truth. But at least it merited a little more looking into. I could log a few more hours in on the case, maybe earn a little more money out of it before I gave her the bill. But I still didn't really know anything. The angle with Bianca had come to a dead end at Linda Randall. All I had were more questions for Miss Randall, and she was as closed as a bank on Sunday. I didn't have anything solid enough to hand to Murphy to let her pursue the matter. Damn it. I was going to have to do that research after all. Maybe it would turn up something helpful. Some kind of clue to help me and the police find the murderer. And maybe dragons would fly out of my butt. But I had to try. So I got out of the car to go inside and get to work. He was waiting for me behind the trash cans that stood next to the stairs leading down to my front door. The baseball bat he swung at me took me behind the ear and pitched me to the bottom of the stairs in a near senseless heap. I could hear his footsteps but couldn't quite move as he came down the stairs toward me. It figured it was just the kind of day I was having. 
I felt his foot on the back of my neck, felt him lift the baseball bat, and then it came whistling down towards my skull with a mighty crack of impact. Except that it missed my motionless head and whacked into the concrete next to my face, right by my eyes instead. Listen up, Dresden, my attacker said. His voice was rough, low, purposefully hoarse. You've got a big nose. Stop sticking it where it doesn't belong. You got a big mouth. Stop talking to people you don't need to talk to. Or maybe we're going to shut that mouth of yours. He waited a melodramatically appropriate moment and then added, permanently. His footsteps retreated up the stairs and vanished. I just lay there, watching the stars in front of my eyes for a while. Mister appeared from somewhere, probably drawn by the groaning noises, and started licking at my nose. I eventually regained my mobility and sat up. My head was spinning, and I felt sick to my stomach. Mister rubbed up against me, as though he sensed something was wrong, purring in a low rumble. I managed to stand up enough to unlock my apartment door, let Mister and myself in, and lock the door behind me. I staggered over to my easy chair in the darkness and sat down with a woof of expelled breath. I sat motionless until the spinning slowed down enough to allow me to open my eyes again, and until the pounding of my head slowed down. Pounding head. Someone could have been pounding on my head with a baseball bat just then. Pounding my head into new and interesting shapes that were inconducive to carrying on business-like pursuits. Someone could have been pounding Harry Dresden right into the hereafter. I cut off that line of thought. You are not some poor rabbit, Dresden. I reminded myself sternly. You are a wizard of the old school, a spells linger of the highest caliber. You're not going to roll over for some schmuck with a baseball bat just because he tells you to. Galvanized by the sound of my own voice, or maybe only by the somewhat unsettling realization that I had begun talking to myself, I stood up and built a fire in the fireplace, then walked unsteadily back and forth in front of it, trying to think, to work out the details. Had this evening's visits triggered the warning? Who had reason to threaten me? What were they trying to keep me from finding? And most importantly, what was I going to do about it? Someone had seen me talking to Linda Randall, maybe. Or more likely, someone had seen me showing up at Bianca's place, asking questions. The Blue Beetle may not be glitzy, but it was sort of difficult to mistake for anyone else's car. Who would have reason to have me watched? Why? Had gentleman Johnny Marconi followed me so that he could have a word with me? So he could ask me to keep out of this business with Tommy Tom's murder? Yes, he had. Maybe this had been another reminder from the mod boss. It had that kind of mafioso feel to it. I staggered to my kitchenette and fixed myself a Tison tea for the headache, then added in some aspirin. Herbal remedies are well and good, but I don't like to take chances. Working on that same principle, I got my Smith & Wesson 38 Chief Special out of its drawer, took the cloth covering off of it and made sure it was loaded. Then I stuck the revolver in my jacket pocket. Wizardry aside, it's tough to beat a gun for discouraging men with baseball bats. And I sure as hell wasn't going to roll over for the tiger-souled Johnny Marconi. Let him push me around. Let him know he was all right to walk all over me whenever he felt like it. No way in hell. Or on earth, either. My head was throbbing and my hands were shaking. But I went down the ladder to my workroom and started figuring out how to rip someone's heart out of his chest from 50 miles away. Who says I never do anything fun on Friday night? It took me the rest of the night and part of the rest of the morning, but I worked out how I could murder someone in the same manner that Tommy Tom and Jennifer Stanton had been killed. After the fifth or sixth time, I checked the figures. 
I stared at my calculations. It didn't make any sense. It was impossible. Or maybe we were all underestimating just how dangerous this killer was. I grabbed my duster and headed out without bothering to check my books. I don't keep any mirrors in my home. Too many things can use mirrors as windows or doors. But I was pretty sure I looked like a wreck. The Studebaker's rearview mirror confirmed this. My face was haggard with a shadow of beard, deep circles under bloodshot eyes, and hair that looked as though it had been riding a speeding motorcycle through a cloud of greasy smoke. Smoothing your hair back with sweaty palms as a study habit will do that to you, especially if you do it for 12 or 14 hours straight. It didn't matter. Murphy wanted this information, and she needed to have it. Things were bad. They were very, very bad. I made quick time down to the station, knowing Murphy would want to hear this from me face to face. The police station Murphy worked in was one in an aged complex of buildings that housed the Metro Police Department. It was run down, sagging in places like an old soldier who nonetheless stood at attention and struggled to hold in his gut. There was graffiti along one wall that the janitor wouldn't come to scrub off until Monday morning. I parked in the visitor's parking, easy to do on a Saturday morning, and headed up the steps and into the building. The desk sergeant wasn't the usual mustached old war horse who I had run into before, but a graying matron with steely eyes who disapproved of me and my lifestyle in a single glance, then made me wait while she called up Murphy. While I waited, a pair of officers came in, dragging a handcuffed man between them. He wasn't resisting them, just the opposite, in fact. His head was thrown down, and he was moaning in an almost musical way. He was on the thin side, but I got the impression he was young. His denim jeans and jacket were battered, unkempt, as was his hair. That DUI we called in. We're going to take him up to holding until he can see straight. The desk sergeant passed a clipboard over, and one of the officers took it under his arm before the two of them dragged the young man up the stairs. I waited, rubbing at my tired eyes, until the sergeant managed to get through to someone upstairs. She gave a rather surprised, Hmm, and then said, All right, Lieutenant, I'll send him on up. She waved a hand at me to go on past. I could feel her eyes on me as I went by, and I smoothed my palm self-consciously over my head and jaw. Special investigations kept a little waiting area just within the door at the top of the staircase. It consisted of four wooden chairs and a sagging old couch that would probably kill your back if you tried to sleep on it. Murphy's office was at the end of a double row of cubicles. Murphy stood inside her office with the phone pressed to her ear, wearing a martyred expression. She looked like a teenager having a fight with her out-of-town boyfriend, though she'd tear my head off if she heard me saying any such thing. I waved my hand, and she nodded back at me. She pointed at the waiting area and then shut her office door. I took a seat in one of the chairs and leaned my head back against the wall. I had just closed my eyes when I heard a scream from behind me in the hallway. There was a struggling sound and a few startled exclamations before the scream repeated itself closer this time. I acted without thinking. I was too tired to think. I rose and went into the hall towards the source of the sound. To my left was the staircase going, and to my right was the hallway stretched ahead of me. A figure appeared, a silhouette of a running man, moving towards me in long strides. It was the man who had hung so limply between the two officers, humming a few minutes before. He was the one screaming. I heard a scrabbling sound, 
and then the pair of officers I had seen downstairs a few moments before came around the corner. Neither one of them was a young man anymore, and they both ran with their bellies out, puffing for breath, holding their gun belts against their hips with one hand. Stop, said one of the officers, panting. Stop that man. The hair on the back of my neck prickled. The man running towards me kept on screaming, high and terrified, his voice a long and uninterrupted peal of something. Terror, panic, lust, rage, all rolled up into a ball and sent spewing out into the air through his vocal cords. I had a quick impression of wide staring eyes and a dirty face, a denim jacket and old jeans as he came down the shadowy hallway. His hands were behind his back, presumably held there by cuffs. He wasn't seeing the hall he was running through. I don't know what he was looking at, but I got the impression I didn't want to know. He came hurtling towards me and the stairs, blind and dangerous to himself. It wasn't any of my business, but I couldn't let him break himself apart in a tumble down the stairs. I threw myself toward him as hard as I could, attempting to put my shoulder into his stomach and drive him backwards in a football-style tackle. There is a reason I got cut every year during high school. I rammed into him, but he just woofed out of breath and spun to one side into a wall. It was as though he hadn't seen me coming and had no realization I was there. He just kept staring blindly and screaming, careening off the wall and continuing on his way toward the stairs. I went down to the floor, my head abruptly throbbing again where the unknown tough had wrapped me with a baseball bat last night. One good thing about being as tall as I am, I have long arms. I rolled back toward him and lashed out with one hand, fingers clutching. I caught his jeans at the cuff and gave his leg a solid sideways tug. That did it. He spun off-balanced, and went down to the tile floor. The scream stopped as the fall took the wind out of him. He slid to the top of the stairs and stopped, feebly struggling. The officers pounded past me towards him, one going to either side. And then something strange happened. The young man looked at me, his eyes rounded and dilated, until I thought they had turned into huge black coins, dotted onto his bloodshot eyeballs. His eyes rolled back into his head until he could hardly have been able to see, and he started to shout in a clarion voice, Wizard, he trumpeted, Wizard, I see you, I see you, wizard. I see things that follow, those who walked before and he who walks behind. They come, they come for you. Christ on a crutch, the shorter, rounder officer said as they took the man by his arms and dragged him back down the hall. Junkies, thanks for the assist, buddy. I stared at the man, stunned. I caught the sleeve of the other officer. What's going on, sir? I asked him. He stopped, letting the prisoner hang behind him and his partner. The prisoner's head was bowed forward and his eyes were still rolled back, but he had his head turned toward me and was grinning a horrible, toothy grin. His forehead was wrinkled oddly, almost as though he were somehow focusing on me through the bones of his brow ridges and the frontal lobes of his brain. Junkie, the taller officer said. One of those new three-eye punks caught him down by the lake in his car with nearly four grams of the stuff. Probably more in him. He shook his head. You okay? Fine, fine, I assured him. Three-eye? That new drug? The shorter officer snorted. One that's supposed to make them see the spirit world, that kind of crap. The taller one nodded. Stuff hooks harder than crack. Thanks for the help. I didn't know you were a civilian, though. Didn't expect anyone but police down here this time of day. No problem, I assured him. I'm fine. 
Hey, the stouter one said. He squinted at me and shook his finger. Aren't you that guy? That psychic consultant Carmichael told me about? I'll take the fifth, I said to him with a grin that I didn't feel. The two officers chuckled and turned back to their business, quickly shouldering me aside as they dragged their prisoner away. He whispered in a mad little voice all the way down the hall, See you, see you, wizard, see he who walks behind. I returned to my chair in the waiting area at the end of the row of cubicles and sat down, my head throbbing, my stomach rolling uncomfortably. He who walks behind. I had never seen the junkie before, never been close to him. I hadn't sensed the subtle tension of power in the air around him that signified the presence of a magical practitioner. So how the hell had he seen the shadow of he who walks behind flowing in my wake? For reasons I don't have time to go into now, I am marked, indelibly, with the remnants of the presence of a hunter spirit, a sort of spectral hitman known as he who walks behind. I had beaten long odds in surviving the enemy of mine who had called up he who walks behind and sent him after me, but even though the hunter spirit had never gotten to me, the mark could still be seen upon me by those who knew how by using the third sight, stretching out behind me like a long and horribly shaped shadow, sort of a spiritual scar to remind me of the encounter. But only a wizard had that kind of vision, the ability to sense the auras and manifestations of magical phenomena, and that junkie had been no wizard. Was it possible that I'd been wrong in my initial assessment of Three-Eye? Could the drug genuinely grant its users the visions of the third sight? I shuddered at the thought. The kind of things you see when you learn how to open your third eye could be blindingly beautiful, bring tears to your eyes, or they could be horrible. Things that made your worst nightmares seem ordinary and comforting. Visions of the past, the future, of the true natures of things. Psychic stains, troubled shades, spirit folk of all description. The shivering power of the never-never in all its brilliant and subtle hues and all going straight into your brain, unforgettable, permanent. Wizards quickly learn how to control the third eye, to keep it closed, except in times of great need, or else they go mad within a few weeks. I shivered. If the drug was real, if it really did open the third eye in mortals instead of just inflicting ordinary hallucinations upon its users, then it was far more dangerous than it seemed, even with the deleterious effects demonstrated by the junkie I had tackled. Even if a user didn't go mad after seeing too many horrible or otherworldly things, he might see through the illusions and disguises of any of a number of beings that passed among mankind regularly unseen, which could compel such creatures to act in defense for fear of being revealed double jeopardy. Dresden, Murphy snapped. Wake up. I blinked. Not asleep. I slurred, just resting my eyes. She snorted. Save it, Harry, and pushed a styrofoam cup into my hands. She'd made me coffee with a ton of sugar in it, just the way I like. And even though it was a little stale, it smelled like heaven. You're an angel, I muttered. I took a sip and then nodded down a row of cubicles. You want to hear this one in your office? I could feel her eyes on me as I drank. All right, she said, let's go. And the coffee's 50 cents, Harry. I followed her to her office, a hastily assembled thing with cheap plywood walls and a door that isn't hung quite right. The door had a paper sign taped to it, neatly lettered in black magic marker with Lieutenant Karen Murphy. 
There was a rectangle of lighter wood where a plaque had once held some other hapless policeman's name. That the office never bothered to put up a fresh plaque was a not-so-subtle reminder of the precarious position of the special investigations director. Her office furniture, the entire interior of the office, in fact, was a contrast with the outside. Her desk and chair were sleek, dark, and new. Her PC was always on and running, with its own desk set immediately to her left. A bulletin board covered most of one wall, and current cases were neatly organized on it. Her college diploma, the Aikido trophies, and her marksman's awards were on the wall to one's immediate right as you entered the office, and sitting there right next to your face if you were standing before her desk or sitting in the chair in front of it. It was Murphy, organized, direct, determined, and just a little bit belligerent. Hold it, Murphy told me. I stopped outside of her office, as I always did, while she went inside and turned off, then unplugged her computer and the small radio on her desk. Murphy is used to the kind of mayhem that happens whenever I get around machinery. After she was done, I went on in. I sat down and slurped more coffee. She slid up onto the edge of her desk, looking down at me, her blue eyes narrowed. She was dressed no less casually on a Saturday than she was on a work day. Dark slacks, a dark blouse, set off by her golden hair and bright silver necklace and earrings. Very stylish. I, in my rumpled sweats and T-shirt, black duster and muscled hair, felt very slouchy. All right, Harry, she said. What have you got for me? I took one last drink of coffee, stifled a yawn, and put the cup down on her desk. She slipped a coaster under it as I started speaking. I was up all night working on it, I said, keeping my voice soft. I had a hell of a time figuring out the spell. And as near as I can figure it, it's almost impossible to do with one person, let alone two at once. She glared at me. Don't tell me, almost impossible. I've got two corpses that say otherwise. Keep your shirt on, I growled at her. I'm just getting started. You gotta understand the whole thing if you're gonna understand any of it. Her glare intensified. She put her hands on the edge of her desk and said in a deadly, reasonable tone, All right, why don't you explain it to me? I rubbed my eyes again. Look, whoever did this did it with a thaumaturgic spell. That much I'm sure of. He or she used some of Tommy Tom and Jennifer Stan's hair or fingernails or something to create a link to them. Then they ripped out a symbolic heart from some kind of ritual doll or sacrificial animal and used a whale of a amount of energy to make the same thing happen to the victims. This doesn't tell me anything new, Harry. I'm getting there, I'm getting there, I said. The amount of energy you need to do this thing is staggering. It would be a lot easier to manage a small earthquake than to affect a living being like that. Best case scenario, I might be able to do it without killing myself to one person who had really, really pissed me off. You're naming yourself as a suspect? Murphy's mouth quirked at the corner. I snorted. I said I was strong enough to do it to one person. I think it would kill me to try, too. You're saying that some sort of wizard version of Arnold Schwarzenegger pulled this off? I shrugged. It's possible, I suppose. More likely, someone who's just really good pulled it off. Raw power doesn't determine all that you can do with magic. Focus matters, too. The better your focus is, the better you are at putting your power in one place at the same time, the more you can get done. Sort of like uh, when you see some ancient little Chinese martial arts master shatter a tree trunk with his hands. He couldn't lift a puppy over his head, but he can focus what power he does have with incredible effect. 
Murphy glanced at her Aikido trophies and nodded. Okay, she said. I can understand that, I think. So we're looking for a wizard version of Mr. Miyagi? Or, I said, lifting a finger, more than one wizard worked on this at the same time, pooled their power together and used it all at once. My pounding head combined with the queasy stomach and the caffeine was making me a little woozy. Teamwork, teamwork, that's what counts. Multiple killers, Murphy drawled. I don't have one, and now you're telling me there might be fifty. Thirteen, I corrected her. You can never use more than thirteen. But I don't think that's very likely. It's a bitch to do. Everyone in the circle has to be committed to the spell. Have no doubts, no reservations, and they have to trust one another implicitly. You don't see that kind of thing from your average gang of killers. It just isn't something that's going to happen, outside of some kind of fanaticism. A cult or a political organization. A cult, Murphy said. She rubbed at her eyes. The arcane is going to have a field day with this one if it gets out. So Bianca is involved in this after all. Surely she's got enough enemies out there who could do this. She could inspire that kind of effort to get rid of her. I shook my head. The pain was getting worse, heavier, but pieces were falling to, into place. No, you're thinking the wrong angle here. The killer wasn't taking out a hooker and Tommy Tom to get at Bianca. How do you know? I went to see her, I responded. Damn it, Harry! I didn't react to her angry. You know she wasn't going to talk to you, Merv. She's an old-fashioned monster girl, no cooperation with the authorities. But she did talk to you, Murphy demanded. I said pretty please. I would beat the crap out of you if you didn't already look like it, Murphy said. What did you find out? Bianca wasn't in on it. She didn't have a clue who it could have been. She was nervous, scared. I didn't mention that she'd been scared enough to try to take me to pieces. So someone's sending a message, but not to Bianca. To Johnny Marconi, I confirmed. Gang war in the streets, Murphy said. And now the outfit is bringing sorcery into it as well. Mafioso magic spells. Jesus Christ. She drummed her heels on the edge of the desk. Gang war. Three eye suppliers versus conventional narcotics, right? She stared at me for a minute. Yeah, Murphy said. Yeah, it is. How did you know? We've been holding out details from the papers. I just ran into this guy who was stoned out of his mind on three eye. Something he said makes me think that the stuff isn't a bunch of crap. It's for real. And you would have to be one very, very badass wizard to manufacture a large quantity of this kind of drug. Murphy's blue eyes glinted. So whoever is the one supplying the streets with three eye is the one who murdered Jennifer Stanton and Tommy Tom. I'm pretty sure of it. It feels right. I tend to agree, Murphy said, nodding. All right, then. How many people do you know who could manage this kind of killing spell? Christ, Murphy, I said. You can't just ask me to hand you a list of names of people to drag downtown for questioning. She leaned closer to me, blue eyes fierce. Wrong, Harry. I can ask you. I can tell you to give them to me. And if you don't, I can haul you in for obstruction and complicity so quick it will make your head spin. My head's already spinning, I told her. A little giggle slipped out. Throbbing head, pound, pound, pound. You wouldn't do that, Murph. I know you. You know damn well that if I had anything you could use, I would give it to you. If you just let me in on the investigation, give me a chance to... No, Harry, she said, her voice flat. Not a chance. I am ass deep in alligators already without you getting difficult on me. You're already hurt, and don't ask me to buy some line about falling down the stairs. I don't want to have to scrape you off the concrete. 
Whoever did Tommy Tom is going to get nasty when someone comes poking around, and it isn't your job to do it. It's mine. Suit yourself, I told her. You're the one with the deadline. Her face went pale, and her eyes blazed. You are such an incredible shit, Harry. I started to answer that. I really did. But my skull got loose and shaky on my neck, and things spun around, and my chair sort of wobbled up onto its back legs and whirled around precariously. I thought it was probably safest to slide my way along to the floor, rubbery as a snake. The tiles were nice and cool underneath my cheek. It was sort of comforting. My head went boom, boom, boom the whole time I was down there, spoiling what would have been otherwise a very pleasant little nap. I woke up on the floor of Murphy's office. The clock on the wall said that it was about twenty minutes later. Something soft was underneath my head, and my feet were propped up with several phone books. Murphy was pressing a cool cloth against my forehead and throat. I felt terrible, exhausted, achy, nauseous, my head throbbing. I wanted to do nothing so much as to curl up and whimper myself to sleep. Given that I would never live that down, I made a wisecrack instead. Do you have a little white dress? I had this deep-seated nurse fantasy about you, Murphy. A pervert like you would. Who hit your head, she demanded. No one, I mumbled, fell down the stairs to my apartment. Bullshit, Harry, she said, her voice hard. Her hands were no less gentle with the cool cloth, though. You've been running around on this case. That's where you got the bump on your head, isn't it? I started to protest. Oh, save it, she said, letting out a breath. If you didn't already have a concussion, I'd tie your heels to my car and ride through traffic. She held up two fingers. How many fingers am I holding up? Fifty, I said, and held up two of my own. It's not a concussion, just a little bump on the head. I'll be fine. I started to sit up. I needed to get home, get some sleep. Murphy put her hand on my neck and pressed me back down on the pillow beneath my head, which was apparently her jacket, because she wasn't wearing it. Stay down, she growled. How did you get here? Not in that heap of a car, I hope. The beetle is doing its phoenix impression, I told her. I've got a loner. Look, I'll be fine. Just let me out of here and I'll go home and get some sleep. <laughs> you aren't in any shape to drive, Murphy said. You're a menace. I'd have to arrest you myself if I let you behind a wheel in your condition. Murph, I said, annoyed. Unless you can pay up for what you owe me already right now, I can't exactly afford a cab. <sighs> Dream on, Harry, Murphy said, and save your breath. I'll give you a ride home. I don't need it, I began, but she got up from her knees and stalked out of her little office. Foolishness, I thought. Stupidity. I was perfectly capable of moving myself around, so I sat up and heaved myself to my feet. Or tried to. I actually managed to half sit up, and then I just heaved. Murphy came back in to find me curled up on my side, her office stinking from where I'd thrown up. She didn't, for a change, say anything. She just knelt down by me again, cleaned off my mouth, and put another cool cloth over the back of my neck. I remember her helping me out to her car. I remember little pieces of the drive back to my apartment. I remember giving her the keys to the loner and mumbling something about Mike and the tow truck driver. But mostly I remember the way her hand felt on mine. Cold, with a little bit of nervousness to the soft fingers, small beneath my great gawking digits, and strong. She scolded and threatened me the entire way back to the apartment, I think. But I remember the way she made sure she held my hand, as though to assure herself that I was still there, or to assure me that she was there, and she wasn't going anywhere. 
There's a reason I'll go out on a limb to help Murphy. She's good people. One of the best. We got back to my apartment sometime before noon. Murphy helped me down the stairs and unlocked the door for me. Mister came running up and hurled himself against her legs in greeting. Maybe being short gives her better leverage or something. She didn't really wobble when Mister rammed her, like I do. Or maybe it's the Aikido. Christ, Harry, she mumbled. This place is dark. She tried the light switch, but the bulb had burned out last week, and I hadn't had the cash to replace them. So she sat me down on the couch and lit some candles off of the glowing coals in the fireplace. All right, she said, I'm putting you in bed. Well, if you insist. The phone rang. It was an arm's reach, so I picked it up. Dresden, I mumbled. Mr. Dresden, this is Linda, Linda Randall. Do you remember me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Two men remember the scene in a movie with Marilyn standing over the subway grating. I found myself remembering Linda Randall's eyes and wondering things a gentleman shouldn't. Are you naked? I said. It took me a minute to register what I'd said. Whoops. Murph gave me an arch look. She stood up and walked into my bedroom and busied herself straightening my covers and giving me a modicum of privacy. I felt cheered. My slip had thrown Murphy off better than any lie I could have managed. Maybe a woozy Harry was not necessarily a bad Harry. Linda purred laughter into the phone. <laughs> I'm in a car right now, honey. Maybe later. Look, I've come up with a few things that might help you. Can you meet me tonight? I rubbed my eyes. It was Saturday. Tonight was Saturday night. Wasn't there something I was supposed to be remembering? How the hell with it, I thought. It couldn't have been all that important if I couldn't even remember it. Sure, I told her. Fine. She mmmed into the phone. You're such a gentleman. And I like that once in a while. I get off at seven, all right? Do you want to meet me, say at eight? My car exploded, I said. My tongue felt fuzzy. I can meet you at the 7-Eleven down the street from my apartment. She poured that rich, creamy laughter into my ear again. Tell you what, give me an extra hour or so to go home, get a nice hot bath, make myself all pretty, and then I'll be there in your arms. Sound good for you? Well, okay. She laughed again and didn't say goodbye before disconnecting. Murphy appeared again, and as soon as I'd hung up the phone, Tell me you didn't just make a date, Dresden. You're jealous, Murphy snorted. Please, I need more of a man than you to keep me happy. She started to get an arm underneath me and help me up. You break like a dry stick, Dresden. You better get to bed before you get any more delusions. I put a hand against her shoulder to push her back. I didn't have that kind of strength, but she backed off, frowning. What? Something, I said. I rubbed my eyes. Something was bothering me. I was forgetting something. I was sure of it. Something I had said I would do on Saturday. I struggled to push thoughts of drug wars and people driven mad by third sight visions given them by three-eye drug and tried to concentrate. It didn't take long to click. Monica. I had told her I would get in contact with her. I patted at my duster pocket until I found a notepad and took it out, fumbled it open, and waved at Murphy. Candle, need to read something. Christ, Dresden, I swear you're at least as bad as my first husband. He was stubborn enough to kill himself, too. She sighed and brought a candle over. The light hurt my eyes for a moment. I made out Monica's number, and I dialed her up. Hello? A male child's voice answered. Hi, I said. I need to speak to Monica, please. Who's this? I remembered. I was working for her on the sly and answered, Her fourth cousin, Harry, from Vermont.
Okay, the kid said. Hold on. And he screamed, without lowering the mouthpiece of the phone from his lips. Mom! Your cousin Harry from Vermont is on the phone long distance. Kids, you gotta love them. I adore children. A little salt, a little squeeze of lemon. Perfect. I waited for the pounding in my head to resolve into a mere agony until the kid dropped the phone and ran off, feet thumping on the hardwood floor. A moment later, there was a rattle of the phone being picked up, and Monica's quiet, somewhat nervous voice said, Um, hello? It's Harry Dresden, I told her. I just wanted to call you and let you know what I've been able to find out for you. I'm sorry, she interrupted. I don't... I don't need any of those. I blinked. Uh, Monica Sells? I read her the phone number. Yes, yes, she said, her voice hurried, impatient. We don't need any help, thank you. Is this a bad time? No, no, it's not that. I just wanted to cancel my order. Discontinued the service. Don't worry about me. There was an odd quality to her voice, as though she were forcing a housewife's good cheer into it. Cancel? You don't want me looking for your husband anymore? But, ma'am, the money. The phone began to buzz, and static made the line fuzzy. I thought I heard a voice in the background somewhere, and then the sound went dead except for the static. For a moment, I thought I'd lost the connection entirely. Blasted unreliable phones. Usually they messed up on my end, not the receiving end. You can't even trust them to foul up dependably. Hello, hello, I said, cross and grumpy. Monica's voice returned. Don't worry about that. Thank you so much for all of your help. Good day. Bye-bye. Thank you. Then she hung up on me. I took the phone away from my ear and stared at it. Bizarre, I said. Come on, Harry, Murphy said. She took the phone from my hand and planted it firmly in his cradle. Oh, Mom, it's not even dark yet. I made the lame joke to try to think about something besides how terribly my head was going to hurt when Murphy helped me up. She did. It did. We hobbled me into the bedroom, and when I stretched out on the cool sheets, I was reasonably certain I was going to set down roots. Murphy took my temperature and felt my scalp with her fingers, careful around the goose egg on the back of my skull. She shined a pen light into my eyes, which I did not like. She also got me a drink of water, which I did like, and had me swallow a couple of aspirin or Tylenol or something. I only remember two more things about that morning. One was Murphy stripping me out of my shirt, boots, and socks, and leaning down to kiss my forehead and ruffle my hair. Then she covered me up with blankets and put out the lights. Mister crawled up there and laid down across my legs, purring like a small diesel engine, comforting. The second thing I remember was the phone ringing again. Murphy was just about to leave, her car keys rattling in her hand. I heard her turn back to pick up the phone and say, Harry Dresden's residence. Then there was silence. Hello, Murphy said. After another pause, Murphy appeared in the doorway, a small shadowy figure looking down on me. Wrong number. Get some rest, Harry. Thanks, Karen. I smiled at her, or tried to. It must have looked ghastly. She smiled back, and I'm sure hers was nicer than mine. She left then. The apartment got dark and quiet. Mister continued to rumble soothingly in the dark. It kept nagging at me, even as I fell asleep. What had I forgotten? And another less sensible question. Who had been on the line who hadn't wanted to speak to Murphy? Had Monica Sells tried to call me back? Why would she call off the case and tell me just to keep the money? I pondered this, 
and baseball bats and other matters until Mr.'s purring put me to sleep. I woke up when thunder rattled the old house above me. True dark had fallen. I had no idea of what time it was. I lay in the bed for a moment, confused and a little dizzy. There was a warm spot on my legs where Mr. had been until a few moments before. But the big gray cat was nowhere to be seen. He was a chicken about thunderstorms. Rain was coming down in sheets. I could hear it on the concrete outside and on the old building above me. It creaked and swayed in the spring thunderstorms and wind, timbers gently flexing, wise enough with age to give a little, rather than put up stubborn resistance until they broke. <laughs> I could probably stand to learn something from that. My stomach was growling. I got out of bed, wobbled a little, and rooted about for my robe. I couldn't find it in the dark, but came across my duster where Murphy had left it on the chair, neatly folded. Laying on top of it was a scattering of cash along with a napkin bearing the words, You will pay me back, Murphy. I scowled at the money and tried to ignore the flash of gratitude I felt. I picked up my duster and tugged it on over my bare chest, then padded on naked feet out into the living room. Thunder rumbled again, growling outside. I could feel the storm in a way that a lot of people can't, and most of those who can put it down to nerves. It was raw energy up there, naked and pulsing through the clouds. I could feel water in the rain and the clouds moving air, blowing the droplets and gusts against the walls of the house. I could sense, waiting, the fire of the deadly lightning, leaping from cloud to cloud above and seeking a path of least resistance to the patient, timeless earth that bore the brunt of the storm's attack. All four elements interacting, moving, energy flashing from place to place in each of its forms. There was a lot of potential in storms that a sorcerer could tap into if he was desperate or stupid enough. A lot of energy to be used up there, where the forces of ancient nature brawled and tumbled. I frowned, thinking about that. It hadn't occurred to me before. Had there been a storm on Wednesday night? Yes, there had. I remember thunder waking me for a few moments in the hours before dawn. Could our killers have tapped into it to fuel his spells? Possibly. It bore looking into. Such tapped magic was often too unstable or volatile to use in such carefully directed fashion. Lightning flashed again, and I counted three or four seconds before the rumble reached me. If the killer was using storms, it would make sense that if he or she were to strike again, it would happen tonight. I shivered. My stomach growled, and more mundane matters took my attention. My head was feeling somewhat better. I wasn't dizzy anymore. My stomach was furious with me. Like a lot of tall, skinny men, I eat endlessly, but it never stays on. I have no idea why. I shambled into the kitchen and started building up the grill. Mister, I called. You hungry, bud? Gonna fry up some burgers. Mm-mm, mm. Lightning flashed again, closer this time, the thunder following right on its heels. The flash was bright enough to sear through my half-sunken windows and make me wince against it. But in the flash of light, I caught sight of Mister. The cat was up on top of my bookshelf, on the far corner of the apartment, as far as it was possible to get away from my front door. He was watching it, his eyes luminous in the half-dark, and though he had the cat-lazy look of any lounging feline, his ears were tilted forward, and his gaze focused unwaveringly upon the door. If it had a tail, it would have been twitching. There came a knocking, a rapping at my chamber door. 
Maybe it was the storm making me nervous, but I quested out with my senses, feeling for any threat that might have been there. The storm made a mess of things, and all of that noise, both physical and spiritual, kept me from being able to tell anything more than that there was someone outside my door. I felt in the pocket of my duster for the gun, but I remember that I'd set it aside in the lab last night and not taken it with me down to the police station. Police don't take kindly to anyone but police toting firearms into a station, don't ask me why. In any case, it was out of easy reach now. And then I remembered that Linda Randall was supposed to show up. I berated myself for getting spooked so easy, and then again for sleeping in so long, and then again for looking and smelling like I haven't showered for a couple of days or combed my hair or shaved or anything else that might have made me marginally less unappealing. Oh, well. I got the impression that with Linda, that sort of thing doesn't seem to matter too much. Maybe she was into Ode Holmes. I walked over to the door and opened it, smoothing back my hair with one hand and trying to keep the sheepish grin off my face. Susan Rodriguez waited outside in the rain, her black umbrella held above her. She wore a khaki trench coat and an expensive black dress beneath it with heels. Pearls shone at her throat and ears. She blinked at me when I peered at the door. Harry? I stared at her. Oh, my gosh. I'd forgotten my date with Susan. How in the world could I have forgotten that? I mean, the White Council, the police, vampires, concussions, junkies, mob bosses, and the baseball bat-swinging thugs notwithstanding. Well, no. There probably wasn't any woman incredible enough to keep my mind on them through all of that. But all the same, it seemed a little rude of me. Hi, Susan, I said lamely. I peered past her. When had Susan said she was going to show up? Nine? And when had Linda said? Eight? No, wait. She had said eight o'clock at first, and then she had said she'd come by in another hour after that, at nine. Oh, boy. This was not going to be pretty. Susan read me like a book and glanced back behind her at the rain before looking back up at me. Expecting someone, Harry? Not exactly, I told her. Uh, well, maybe. Look, come on in, you're getting drenched. Which wasn't exactly true. I was getting drenched. My bare feet soaked, standing there in the open door the wind blowing rain down the stairwell at me. Susan's mouth quirked in a malicious, predatory smile, and she came in, folding down her umbrella and brushing past me. This is your apartment? Now, nah, I told her, this is my summer house in Zurich. She eyed me as I closed the door, took her coat, and hung it up on a tall, old wooden hat stand near the doorway. Susan turned away from me as I hung up her coat. Her dress showed her back, the long curve of her spine all the way down to her waist. It had a fairly tame hemline and long, tight sleeves. I liked it. A lot. She let me see her back for a while as she walked away from me toward the fireplace and then slowly turned to face me, smirking, leaning one smooth hip on the couch. Her midnight hair was bound up on top of her head, displaying a long and slender neck. Her skin, an advertisement for something smooth and wonderful. Her lips quirked up at the corner, and she narrowed her dark, flashing eyes at me. The police having you put in overtime, Harry, she drawled. The killings must be sensational. Major crime figure, murdered with magic. Care to make a statement? I winced. She was still hunting for an angle for the arcane. Sure, I told her. Her eyes widened in surprise. I need a shower, I said. I'll be right back. Mister, keep an eye on the lady, eh? Susan gave me a little roll of her eyes and then glanced up at the studied mister on his perch on the bookcase. 
Mister, for his part, flicked an ear and continued staring at the door. More thunder rumbled overhead. I lit a few candles for her, and then took one with me into the bathroom. Think, Harry. Get awake. Get your head clear. What to do? Get clean. I told myself. You smell like a horse. Get some cool water over your head and work this out. Linda Randall is going to be here in a minute, and you need to figure out how to keep Susan from prying her nose into the business of the murders. So advised, I agreed with myself and hurriedly got undressed and into the shower. I don't use a water heater, and consequently, I am more than used to cold showers. Actually, given how often I and wizards in general get to date actual real women, maybe that's just as well. I was lathering up with shampoo when the lightning got a lot worse. The thunder a lot louder, the rain a lot harder. The height of the storm had hit the old house, and it hit hard. It was almost impossible to see clearly in the violent electrical discharge, almost impossible to hear over the thunder. But I caught a flicker of motion out of the corner of my eye, a shadow that moved across the sunken window, covered by modest curtains, in the bathroom. Someone was moving towards the stairs down to my apartment. Did I mention how I haven't had a ton of success with women? Nights like this one are a reason why. I panicked hard. I leapt out of the shower, my head all a sudsy, wrapped a towel around my waist, and headed out into the front room. I couldn't let Linda just come to the door and have Susan answer it. That would be the cattiest thing you've ever seen, and I would be the one to get all the scratches and bites too. I rounded the corner from my bedroom into the main room and saw Susan reaching for the doorknob. Lightning flashed again, and thunder kept me from hearing the knob's click clack. I heard something else though, a snarling, spitting sound, and saw Mister on his feet now, his back arched up and all his fur fluffed out, teeth bared, his no longer sleepy eyes fastened on the door. The thunder passed as Susan swung the door open. I could see her face in profile. One hand was on her hip. And there was an amused, dangerous little smile on her pretty mouth. As the door opened, I felt it—the cloud of energies that accompanies a spiritual being when it comes into the mortal world, disguised until now by the background clutter of the storm. A figure stood in the doorway, rather squat, less than five feet tall, dressed in a plain brown trench coat illuminated by the blue lightning overhead. There was something wrong to the shape—something that just wasn't part of good old Mother Earth. Its head turned to look at me, and sudden twin points of fire, as blue as the lightning dancing above, flared up, illuminating the leathery, inhuman curves of a face that most closely resembled that of a large and warty toad. Susan got a good look at the demon's eyes and face from two feet away and screamed. "Susan!" I shouted, moving already towards the couch. "Get out of the way!" I threw myself on the floor behind the couch, landing with a thump of hard floor hitting my ribs. The demon's jaws parted in a silent hiss, and its throat constricted weirdly as I vanished behind the couch. There was a hissing sound, and a heart-sized section of the couch just dissolved in a cloud of mist and foul stench. Droplets of liquid spattered through onto the floor near me, and where they touched, little holes corroded outward in the space of two seconds. I rolled away from the couch and the demon's acid. Susan, I shouted, "Get back towards the kitchen! Don't get between it and me!" What is it? She screamed back at me. A bad guy. I poked my head up and peered through the smoking hole in the couch, ready to duck back at a moment's notice. The demon, squat and bulkier than a human, was standing in the doorway, both long-fingered, pad-tipped hands leaning forward towards the inside of the house. It paused as though resting against a light screen. 
Why isn't it coming in? Susan asked from the far corner near the door. Her back was pressed to the walls, and her eyes were wide and terrified. My God, I thought, just don't pass out on me, Susan. Homestead laws, I said. It isn't a mortal creature. It has to gather its energy to push through the barrier around the home. Can it get in? She said. Her voice was thin and reedy. She was asking questions, gathering information, data, falling back on her ingrained career instincts because, I suspected, her rational brain had short-circuited. That happens to people who get a hard look at a demon for the first time.